everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, as always, we have one Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm good, man. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to grease myself up here, get get a little bit limber, get the old uh, F1 juices flowing again, because it feels like a hot minute since we talked about speedy race cars. Speaking of hot minutes, also joining us, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Doing better now that I've heard that Danny's all greased up. Let's go, baby. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, the, the F1 season has officially started now that uh, the preseason primer episode is here. Um, <laughs> so whether you've been with us for years or you've just watched Drive to Survive on Netflix and found this podcast um, or just F1 curious, know nothing about Formula One, whatever, you have come to the right place. Uh, this is our preseason primer episode that assumes you have no f1 knowledge before this so um we do this episode every year because f1 uh, has a pretty steep learning curve and without knowing how the sport works and who everybody is you're basically just watching cars go around uh in a circle so um that's what we're here for uh and when you do have that knowledge f1 uh, in our opinion, is really, really fun to watch. So, uh, yeah, you kind we, of, you'll accrue a lot of this yourself, you know, the personalities, yeah. the racetracks, all that sort of stuff. Experience, there's no better teacher than experience. But uh, we try and kind of, I don't know, get the ball rolling, get you thinking about stuff, you know, plant some little ideas about who the drivers are you might want to check out and where we're going to be going because uh, there's a lot happening in any given F1 season. Yeah, a jump start, if you will. Um, but yeah, we're going to be throwing a lot of information at you in this episode. Um, so don't get overwhelmed. My recommendation would be to not try to like, try to rem- not try to remember everything. It's not going to be a and test. just kind of, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like let it all wash over you. And then when you watch a race, you'll remember, uh, oh, right. That's what they said about the pit stops or whatever. And then that's when you will make the connection. Um, the commentators also tend to do a pretty good job too. So, uh, do they? It'll, it'll... <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Sorry, we point, do better. Classic, classic preseason primer stuff now for a show, and it's like uh, since we've been doing it as Shift F One, all three of us, like our it's our third year together, I guess, as, as a group. But yeah, I'd love to start the primer with the inside jokes and just like you know grinding the old axes and grievances. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think. Um, in terms of like getting up to speed on F1, I think to some degree this touches on the first point in our primer that you outlined here, Drew, which is what is F1? Because I think there's two answers, right? And if you're just coming to this, I think to a degree it's also a narrative form of entertainment. And you can just kind of enjoy it as a series of storylines that are undergirded by a lot of technical stuff. But the main thing to probably bear in mind are the big storylines going into season if you don't know the sport too well. And the importance of a lot of the technical stuff we're going to get into will start to become really apparent once you're watching cars go around track. Yeah. I mean, we, we often call it a soap opera because of how, how many enticing storylines there are. Um, but yeah, this is this is... This episode will be more on the technical side, um, but especially if you've watched Drive to Survive, you'll get a, a sense of who the personalities are and the the, the storylines going into the season. But I mean, that changes from 
from race to race. And that's kind of the the whole point of this podcast is to be sort of a companion piece to the F1 season. So from here on out, uh, we'll do uh, pre-race episodes where we talk about the upcoming track, what to expect from each team, and again, the storylines going into it, and then the post-race shows uh, where we talk about what happened in the race that just occurred. And of course, all the news listener questions and stuff um but yeah what we want to do is basically make formula one accessible because you know racing is for everyone um but yeah so, uh, to give sort of a broad overview here of the sport and it is a sport these are athletes uh <laughs> you try to drive a formula one car um f1 started in 1950 and is considered by many to be the pinnacle of motor racing uh, around a track these are the fastest cars in the world um, it's also the most watched motorsport worldwide, and its drivers are the highest paid. Um, the F1 season starts this year in March and runs to December. 23 races are planned, uh, although we'll see how COVID affects yeah. that. It decimated <laughs> last year. Last year's preseason primer came with a pretty big asterisk. <laughs> yes. Um and uh, the races take place all around the world, which to me is one of the coolest aspects of F1 to has that international feel. And the drivers are from all over. And um, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess varying levels of fan base around the world. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it gives a, a, a cool flavor to everything. Um, so at the end of each race, uh, just to give a sense of the overall structure here, at the end of each race, drivers are awarded points based on where they finish. And at the end of the season, the driver with the most points wins the championship. There are 20 drivers, two on each team. Uh, some of the teams are names that you've heard of because they're auto manufacturers who use F1 as sort of an extended research and development division. Uh, Mercedes, Ferrari, stuff like that. Um, and if you are wondering, wait, I thought all drivers were trying to beat each other. So how does it work? If they're teammates, that's a fun question. Uh, <laughs> the short answer is they tend to play nice with each other until they don't. Yeah. Um, so we refer to each uh, Grand Prix as a race weekend. The races are all on Sunday, but for me, the 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 story arc for each race starts earlier in the weekend. Um, in the days before the race, there are three practice sessions often called free practice, uh, which the teams use to dial in their car setups. And then you have a qualifying session on Saturday that determines the order that the drivers will start uh, on Sunday. Yes, Rob. Do we want to get into our first wrinkle for this year? Uh-oh. Please. So F1 for ages has had a, a race weekend that was structured as there was a long Friday practice, a short Saturday morning practice, uh, and then a qualifying session that rolled out in three parts. One of the things that is being proposed for the season, and it's a thing that might happen, but increasingly looks like it will happen, at least on a testing basis, is that Formula One has a couple, Formula One has a couple problems. Uh, one is that sometimes the races can be a little bit what they call like processional or parade-like no. or boring. <laughs> um, and one of the factors behind that is F1 cars traditionally are designed really to win qualifying sessions. Uh, more than anything else, like where you start is a determiner of where you're going to finish. 
And so uh, everything kind of hinges on qualifying uh, a lot of times, and it becomes very hard to overtake during the races uh, for a lot of reasons. One of the solutions being proposed is to create a little more of an exciting version F1. And one of the ways they're looking at doing that is to do qualifying races, what are called sprint races. And so at some point this season, it seems like it is very likely we are going to see a different format rolled out where they are going to turn one of the practice sessions into a little mini qualifying session for a sprint race. A sprint race is a short race, uh, hence the name sprint, no pit stops, uh, just quick end to end race, a bit like what you sit down with a video game to play. Uh, and they will do a quick race with no stops based on that qualifying. And the results of that race will determine the qualifying positions for the Grand Prix on Sunday. Um, this is all really controversial stuff. And you're going to like, this is going to be coming up constantly on this show because this is one of those areas where teams are waging pretty pitched battles about like what the essence of the sport is and who this advantage is. Um, but yeah, like this, this race weekend structure and the way uh, the cars are qualified is currently one of the major things that is up for debate uh, in F1 and is going to be one of our major storylines uh, this year. Yeah, so just to give a um, a rundown of what you, what to expect from um, the majority of qualifying sessions. So the, the sprint races are, I think they're going to try them out um, with a handful of races this year. That's the that's the plan anyway. Um, but for the most part, we'll have a traditional qualifying uh, session on Saturday. So if if you watch that, you'll see that it's divided into three sessions in Q one. Uh, everybody goes out on track and just tries to set their fastest lap. Um, at the end of the session, which is only 18 minutes long, the slowest five cars are eliminated and then the rest move on to the next session. So those five slowest cars start the race in positions 16 through 20. In Q2, another five cars are eliminated, making Q3 uh, a shootout for the top 10 positions and again you're just trying to set the fastest lap that you can uh the fastest car in q3 starts the race in first place which we call pole position um and it may sound kind of boring to just be watching what is essentially a time trial but um qualifying can be really fun to watch because yeah everybody has this narrow window to set the fastest time that they can um like generally you only get two sometimes one shot at a really good lap because like you know there's tire warm-up times and everybody's like getting ready set up and then go uh and because of that pressure a lot of surprises can happen yeah and also Um, worth mentioning that the difference between these cars especially in that last section of qualifying is down to tenths and often hundreds of seconds it's it's super uh, minute yeah so i but yeah, we might see this weird sprint race thing, which is, I think it's going to be like a third of the distance of a normal race. Um, I, F1 has tried to 
revamp qualifying <laughs> yeah. a handful of times over the years, and I I don't get it. Qualifying is great. Just leave it alone. Stop trying to kill qualifying. Well, I mean, to an extent, they've successfully reinvented it, because like when uh, I think Danny and I started watching it when we were youngins, um, qualifying was, uh, we're going to put this big-ass special engine that will explode in two laps, but it only needs to run for one, and so whoever sets the fastest, whoever sets the fastest lap on the exploding engine gets to start yeah. the race with a different engine that will actually finish the race, but they start in first. And like I remember that, and we were all like, yeah, that seems normal. Exploding engine, of course. Uh, and I remember when they rolled in the three-stage qualifying and started like, setting engine allocations, mm. I am sure there were people back then who were like, what do you mean? This is great. I love the exploding <laughs> engines. Uh, and so like one of the, one of the constants of F1 is F1 sort of slowly realizing there might be some problems, and then really painfully uh, addressing them over time in ways that unsatis- that dissatisfy everyone until we all yeah, get used to you, it. And, and people right. probably noticed this if they watched the you know latest season of Drive to Survive, which is Netflix's sort of in-house uh, documentary series on the previous year of F1, um, that some of the best races come from uh, people sort of qualifying in positions that they, they, you know, kind of shouldn't be like leaders at the back and slower cars at the front. There was one or two races last year where there was either sort of rain happened at the wrong time or some other sort of uh, tragedy befell, you know, one of the cars or a couple of the cars. And mixing up the pack just makes for a much more exciting race. So you don't have the leaders sort of stretching off into the distance. Um, and, you know, most of the action happening in the middle of the pack, which just you know, by virtue of the stakes that are up for grabs there are, isn't as exciting. Well, which is which is my, and maybe this is just getting way too into the weeds here on the very first episode, no, but like, no this way. is my problem with sprint races. <laughs> because if you have this, so first of all, there's going to be a qualifying for the sprint race. So in a few years, are we just going to have a qualifying for the first sprint race? Which no, then, then sets the grid for the second sprint race. Which, or, you know. So, uh, but anyway, like, I'm afraid that a sprint race is just going to filter out all of that cool mix-up stuff, and then we'll start the real race, and then we'll just get a race that is, you know, fastest car to slowest car, two by two by team, and it's going to be a procession again, so. So, here is, and I will... I think this this is actually a discussion that will shed some light on this is primer material. Why is F1 this way? Because mm. F1 has been around long enough as a sport that when it was conceptualized, the cars were primitive pieces of garbage that killed drivers <laughs> on the regular. Yeah. Um, yeah. You go back and you watch old F1 races. They were metal tubes um, with giant tires, giant engines, uh, and you just sort of prayed. Now F1 cars are really sophisticated, particularly their aerodynamics. Um, and aerodynamics is probably the reigning, like there are two things that are kind of the kings of F1. It's like, how good is your engine? Um, and that's a topic we'll get to in a minute, but also how aerodynamically sound is your car and the problem in F1. One of the things that enables these cars to be so high performing is that in clean air that is undisturbed by other traffic, um, like lab conditions, these cars can be astonishingly fast and generate absolute incredible amounts of downforce via their wings uh, that keep them basically like glued to the road. But if, say, another car or 19 other cars have been through the area recently <laughs> and the air is sort of blowing around, suddenly all those aerodynamics begin to work against you because they're sort of grabbing for air that isn't there anymore. And so one of the things that F1 is realizing is that 
racing has become very hard in these cars because they're so aerodynamically sensitive. And one of the arguments that people have made is that if we make qualifying less critical and make race conditions more important, hence the sprint race, eventually, uh, not only will you see more racing in a weekend, but you will also see cars start to be a little bit more rugged for race conditions, which might make for more exciting action on track because now you're building cars to actually overtake in traffic and, and slice and dice. That's an interesting theory. We've never seen anything like it because qualifying has been a separate part of F1 for so long. Um, and so it's really exciting to sort of be thinking about there, you know, I could see a version of the sprint race really throwing a uh, monkey wrench into F1 because think about like, Think about all those drivers that we really enjoy who are just like early race beasts um, who like roll off the grid and just kick ass for like five or six laps, but they're not in a good car and they just sort of slide down the order with a sprint race. Suddenly those guys be starting the Grand Prix from a way better position and you might get more exciting races. So we'll see. But this is this is a major point of discussion in F1 uh, because the abilities of these cars are so tightly tied to their deficiencies as like entertainment products that uh, this become, this is an evergreen topic uh, in F1 and you are going to see it come up again and again on the show. Um, and again and again, when we talk about like the action on track, good races versus bad. Um, a lot of times it all hinges on whether or not these guys feel like they're actually racing or if they're just kind of going around the track at the same time. Yeah. And in terms of broadcast, um, the qualifying session currently is about an hour and a, a race is um, uh, typically a little under two hours. So uh, that's the amount of time that we set aside every uh, every race weekend. Uh, but yeah, let's get to, I guess, how teams work. Um, so teams and drivers, a lot of the fun of F1 is uh, not only having these sorts of <laughs> philosophical discuss discussions, but getting to know the people behind the sport uh, and developing your favorites, that's what makes every battle on track exciting, not just who gets first place. And in Formula 1, that's key because, you know, as we've sort of said, um, there are these top teams, then there's kind of the mid-pack, and then there are the teams who often bring up the rear. So um, if you know... Therefore, that a team is an underdog, it makes it that much more exciting if they exceed expectations. Um, it, it may sound strange to a newcomer, but there are occasions when we are really excited about somebody coming in third and bored yeah. at someone coming in first, you know? Uh, so a lot of these teams uh, are names that you've heard of. Many are uh, car manufacturers, like we said, um, and others are just huge brands that have dumped a lot of money into F1 uh, to increase their visibility. Uh, one thing to point out is that teams can sell certain parts to each other, uh, most notably the engine. So you'll see a Mercedes team, but also that the uh, McLaren team uses a Mercedes engine. Typically, the team that makes the engine, which we call a works team, is the more dominant one. But again, it can be really fun when a customer team beats them. Uh, the two cars on each team, unfortunately, look almost identical. Yeah. So it can be tough to determine which driver you're looking at. 
The trick that we use is to look at the camera pod, sometimes called the T-bar, which sits directly on top of the car, just behind the driver's head. Generally, the more senior driver gets a black camera pod and the newer driver gets a fluorescent yellow one. Uh, this does leave it up to you to memorize which driver has which, however, but uh, that's how we do it. Um, and sometimes people ask how to pick a favorite driver or team. I, I don't really have a specific answer to that because you never really know what's going to stand out to you. Maybe you'll see a driver make some amazing move and you'll say, that's my guy. Um, maybe you'll like the cut of somebody's jib over the radio or in interviews, or maybe you just like the color orange. Uh, it is really <laughs> whatever you latch on to. I think the first question is, how do you feel about douchebags? Yeah. And it like cuz that's the first sort cuz you cut the field right in half. Like if you if you enjoy sort of the dirtbag half of like if you like man, I really love like I love like villains. I love heels, I love scumbags. We got 10 drivers thereabouts for you to choose from. If you're like I like good boys. I can give you a different like set of 10. Then we can start filtering you. But but yeah, I think a lot of it is um Sometimes, like, a driver's style will just resonate with you. Um, sometimes mm. they've just got such a compelling bio. And, yeah, and sometimes you just end up in a weird relationship. Like, um, you know, Drew's ended up with anyone who's uh, flown the Williams colors uh, over the over the years. <laughs> uh, where it's like, I root for this underdog team, therefore I will adopt these lost puppies. I like, yes. the, uh, I like Rob as a F1 matchmaker. It's a, I should spin that out into a patron-exclusive service. <laughs> Uh, all right, so here we go. All the teams and drivers um, in order that the teams finished the championship last mm. year. So in addition to the driver championship, uh, the drivers for each team, their points um, get contributed to a team's championship, and then whichever team's drivers get the most points earn the team uh, a team championship. And actually, the Formula One prize payouts... Um, are determined by the order uh, in which you finish the championship. So at the end of the year, F1 gives the most money to uh, the top team, which last year, uh, and for many years before that, mm. was Mercedes. Uh, they are a, a black car with a teal accent uh, when you see them on track. Are they doing um, black again this year? Yes. Cool. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think they have a, a good-looking car. Um, they have Mercedes engines. Um, I, I have here the nationality for each team there. It's, this is a weird question because like the, like Mercedes, I guess is a, it's a German company. Mm. Um, but I think all of the teams They're have all in Britain. bases in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the exception of maybe some of the Italian ones. I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Ferrari doesn't. Well, I'm sure maybe they have satellite offices, but yeah, most of these teams are primarily based around the sort of British Midlands. I think uh, even yeah. Renault has like a British uh, like pod. Uh, Surprise! Doing some I work. Bet they have a plant but, there. But yeah, um, but yeah, go on. Yeah, so last year they placed first. Um, they are the overwhelmingly dominant team in Formula One. They have won every single well in the last in the modern era they've won every single constructors and drivers championship since 2014 uh which makes them a little tough to root for but i actually do like the people involved the the team principal which is the f1 term for boss um is a guy named toto wolf who is a large austrian man who sounds like arnold schwarzenegger um and i like their drivers too uh their their driver who won the championship last year 
if you've heard of a Formula One driver uh, who's currently driving, it's it's probably Sir Lewis Hamilton, who was recently knighted. Um, he is the only black driver in the history of Formula One, which should tell you a little bit about the history. And also, these will all be men, which is again not a not a rule of the discipline, but it's just sort of the way things have been and continue to be. Hey, welcome to Shift F1. Uh, here's a primer on the sport. First of all, uh, we got to explain some structural bias and structural inequality to you, uh, because those are topics that come up a lot in F1, and people don't like to discuss those. Dude, we haven't, yeah, we haven't even gotten to class yet. Yeah, and he's he's actually one of the few F1 underdog stories. Uh, unlike basically everyone on the grid, his parents were not especially wealthy and had to work multiple jobs to fund his racing, which is a really expensive sport, as it turns out. Uh, his dad serving as his mechanic when he was uh, racing go-karts. Um, but he has won a record-tying seven championships uh, and holds the outright records for the most wins at 95, uh, pole positions at 98, and podium finishes, uh, the top three, um, with 165. Uh, not bad, considering he has only entered 266 races. Uh, despite that, I think he genuinely seems like a humble dude um, and has been far and away the most outspoken driver uh, about causes that he supports, from uh, Black Lives Matter to climate change to animal rights. Uh, he also has a very cute bulldog named Roscoe who has his own Instagram account. So I don't know how you can argue with that. Uh, Lewis Hamilton's teammate, Valtteri Bottas, is from Finland. Uh, last year, he placed second in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, and unfortunately for him, he is sort of the perfect number two driver to Lewis Hamilton. Uh, he's a strong enough driver to keep Lewis on his toes, but so far hasn't been a true threat yet. Um, I like Valtteri. He's, he's sportsmanlike, and he'll race hard but isn't a jerk about it. Uh, so it's it's fun for me to see him do well, but the narrative has always been... This is the year that he'll really take the fight to Lewis, and so far he hasn't really been able to. So um, we'll see. All right, we're I'm up next. Uh, Drew divvied them. The, Drew divvied these out, and I, I'm happy with the ones that I got given. Actually, a bit of a mix. I just took them from last year. It's good. Yeah, exactly. Keep it, keep it, keep it regular. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, Red Bull, which uh, was the team that came second last year. Um. They sort of have been fighting it out with Ferrari in recent years. Uh, but Ferrari had a particularly poor year, um, which Rob will be getting into, I'm sure, uh, pretty soon. So Red Bull, yes, this is the drinks company um, who also do, you know, lots of inroads into extreme sports and, you know, build your own airplane and jump off a cliff. They just do lots of, you know, j- jump out of a balloon and, you know, in a spacesuit. They they do lots of wacky stuff, but they've been in, involved in uh, Formula 1 for a long, long time now at this stage, you know, probably a, a decade and a half at least. Um, they're based in the UK. They have a uh, team principal called Christian Horner, who is married to Ginger Spice um, and lives in a mansion, just in case you're wondering who the people are who <laughs> run <laughs> F1 teams or who are in the power seats. Um, they have a dark blue car with sort of red and yellow accents. You can't miss the Red Bull, the one that's on the can. In many ways, they look like cans that are driving around uh, the track. 
They are based in Milton Keynes, which of course was the city all British people know is the city that was built in the 70s because London was getting too big. So they just built a city um, and uh, that's where they're based, although it is owned by uh, Dietrich uh, Mad- I can never pronounce it, sorry, Mattishitz, 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 um, who is the, Mattishitz, I don't know, um, who is the, uh, uh, the guy who owns Red Bull um, and he's, uh, you know, Austrian, I'm pretty sure. And uh, they have their own racetrack as well, which we will be getting to later on. And I'll be talking about later on as well. And that's in beautiful Austria. And uh, they have two drivers. A uh, bit of an interesting setup. They might have the strongest one too. Um, you know, perhaps including Mercedes. It's hard to tell, but they have a very strong uh, sort of a, a, a duo with the first I don't know it's it's almost hard to place which one's first or second when you look at their skill but when you look at the way Red Bull operates it's really easy to see who the number one driver is uh, it's their boy Max Verstappen who is a sort of a fiercely talented individualistic uh, um, young talent who has been in the sport for um, a couple of years now, maybe four or five seasons. Uh, his father is also an established F1 driver, Joss Verstappen, who was in the sport for um, a decent amount of time. He is Dutch, as the name suggests. He has lots of fans who wave orange. Uh, and he came third last year. Um, he has sort of been the, the ruling prince of the team for the past couple of years as they have cycled in teammates, uh, many of whom have been sort of underperforming in the you know as they have to live underneath the crown of Max Verstappen perhaps a car that is more tweaked to his liking than to theirs um so that's why this year's teammate is very interesting because it's not a young driver that has come up through their academies it is an elder statesman of the sport Sergio Perez who is a Mexican driver he came fourth last year which if anyone had said in the preseason primer last year we would have been um pinching ourselves to wake up uh, he actually almost lost his seat last year, which is why it's so remarkable that given um, where he was sort of mid and end of last season at his previous team racing point, he sort of was losing his seat because of um, politic, team politics. This is not something new in F1. Team politics are outside of his control. Um, but he actually won the penultimate race of the season and sort of in a time where there was maybe one or two extra seats in the sport, managed to grab this second Red Bull seat. Uh, Perez is a workhorse. He's driven in lots of different cars. He's driven for different teams. And he's always seemed to be the type of driver who has driven past the ability of the car, who has perhaps done better than the team would have expected. So it's very interesting to see him in a car that is racy for the first time uh, in the sort of last years of his you know career could have been that his career was already over by now um sitting next to a young talent who kind of at this stage is going to want to you know put up or shut up maybe the other team that i have here is another surprise sort of uh top you know podium position for the constructors uh due to a large part ferrari's demise um (laughs) is McLaren, who are a team who are sort of slumming us at the bottom end of the constructors for the past couple of years, um, but have had a f- fairly fantastic re- rejuvenation and have also have a, a, a nice, strong... They had strong drivers last year and they have a great little duo this year too. Uh, they're also based in the UK, uh, in Woking, uh, although their team principal is Zach Brown, who's an American, one of the few Americans in the sport. 
they have a Mercedes engine. Sorry, I forgot to mention Red Bull have uh, the Honda engine for at least one more year. Well, only one more year. As Honda sort of wave goodbye to the sport. Um, McLaren came third last year. And the biggest change between them last year and this year is that their uh, number one driver, I guess, Carlos Sainz Jr., has moved on to Ferrari. Uh, They filled his vacant seat with... Uh, a driver who's had a rough couple of years um, sort of bouncing around Daniel Ricardo. he's an Australian he came third last year uh, he used to be Max Verstappen's teammate over at Red Bull and then he left because I guess he wanted to you know not be a number two driver while he was arguably as good and sometimes better than Max uh, he went to Renault and he had a bit of trouble there Renault didn't have great seasons and now he finds himself in a McLaren um, uh, and he has He's the type of driver who has had maybe wasn't that the right. We're not sure if that move is particularly well did well for him. He may have like burned a couple of years there um, as Renault really struggled. So I think he's going to be thirsty to win races this year. And we should have some great action between him and the other Red Bulls. Um, and his teammate is Lando Norris, who is a younger driver, came fourth last year. Um, he is the sort of um, meme king streamer boy of the F1 <laughs> world. Um, he gets the rest of the drivers to join him on Twitch. I don't think any of them would have been on Twitch if it wasn't for him sort of dragging them on. Um, and he's part of a sort of a little group of young drivers who came up through the ranks together who are all now sort of um, doing quite well at these big teams. Um He's jovial, he's kind, he's nice, he seems quite young, he comes across quite young, um, and he kind of is the proto-Daniel Ricardo in many respects, in terms of the, his attitude at least, so it's going to be quite fun to see the two of them bouncing around the paddock. Um, and yeah, in a car that is has been on an upward trajectory, and I guess we'll see soon enough whether or not that's going to continue for McLaren. Yeah, this is the first year... Uh, in many years that they are using a Mercedes engine, uh, which mm. is a can be a tricky thing to drop in a new engine because like all the different engines are different sizes and you got to redesign the whole back end of your car or, or more. Um, so it's a complete toss up about whether that works or not. Uh, and that's kind of the big question here but yeah Yeah. i i I like mclaren mostly because of their their drivers this is the goofball team like these guys are like just a couple of frat bros gonna be playing pranks on each other uh it's gonna be fun Uh, yeah and zach kind of comes across as a bit of a you know the animal house like dean maybe (laughs) it's funny because like he's the ceo but then they have andreas seidel who is the team principal who is um another austrian i think who is just seems very like he doesn't show up on camera very much i think he's just he's the adult in the room so (laughs) okay so next on the list we have the aston martin team uh aston martin is a famous uh like car company in the uk they are new to F1, uh, but this isn't this isn't really an Aston Martin team. Uh, this is a team kind of wearing Aston Martin branding. Last year, they were in the sport as Racing Point, and uh, prior to that, they were a team known as Force India. This is a team that, from its Force India days, built up a reputation as being very successful and very good, especially at punching above their weight. 
uh, in terms of resources and then delivering surprisingly high results, uh, which is not an easy thing to do in F1. Uh, there's a lot of people who get into the sport thinking we'll be smarter with our money, we'll deploy our resources more carefully, and don't really produce results uh, to show for that strategy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Uh, but Racing Point generally made a good go of it. Uh, but for a lot of reasons that were out of their control, their previous backers kind of fell apart and they ended up being a company in some distress. Inter Lawrence Stroll, uh, who is a billionaire, he's often, he's often considered like a fashion, uh, magnate, but that's probably not really true. Like most, most people are in finance in one form or another. Uh, and that's kind of true of Stroll. It's just his, the, the places he's deployed his capital have been in those industries. Uh, but his reputation is as being kind of a turnaround artist, uh, I, I gather, with his investments. And he got into F1 a few years ago via the Williams team, which we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes here. But his primary interest that brought him to F1 is that his son, Lance Stroll, has long harbored ambitions of being a, a top-tier open-wheel racer and has, backed by his father's money, made his way into Formula One. Uh, he used to be at the Williams team, but the Williams team was very bad, uh, and they ended up sort of moving Stroll's investment and Stroll himself to Racing Point. And uh, now we have sort of entered a situation where Stroll just kind of bought the company lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, and while it's called Aston Martin racing it's definitely Lawrence Stroll's show uh at, at this point um their two drivers are Lance Stroll uh the boss's son Any relation <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> very close uh, relation and Sebastian Vettel uh their team principal is uh Otmar Safnauer uh and their team colors are not quite British racing green. Uh, it's it's sort of a deep green that sort of references that color, but uh, is a, maybe a little more modern looking, I would say. Uh, it's got black trim and a, a faint pink stripe, which I think might be due to some sponsorship, but also does kind of harken to uh, their background as Racing Point, which was a notoriously pink car uh, due to a sponsor directive uh, they had. Um, the driver lineup is really interesting um, for a couple reasons. First, Sebastian Vettel is the senior driver, I guess, in this lineup, insofar as he is a uh, three-time world champion. Uh, four, I think. Four, oh. yeah. Um, he was successful and maybe one of the drivers who... In the history of F1, as long as I've been watching it, in general, we've had waves of uh, of, ma- of massive uh, title success from teams and drivers. After uh, Michael Schumacher, who was for many years the greatest of all time in F1, retired, uh, Sebastian Vettel sort of stepped in and brought the Red Bull team to a period of dominance or rode the Red Bull team to a period of dominance, depending on how you look at it. But he amassed a really impressive collection of titles in short order as a very young driver. 
And ever since then, things have not gone as well. Uh, Red Bull declined in form. And then he made the decision to go to Ferrari uh, to sort of stake his claim on that team, that part of F1 uh, history, as well as um, maybe sort of following the footsteps of Michael Schumacher. In that time, Ferrari went to absolute hell. uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But the main takeaway is for the last couple of years, Sebastian Vettel has shown flashes of like his old self. But last year was bad uh vettel had a terrible 2020 uh ferrari announced they were firing him before the season even really got rolling due to the covid delay uh and so he ended up having a year at ferrari where he only finished higher than 10th uh two times uh he only outqualified his teammate uh charles leclerc uh four times and he only racked up 33 points uh so it was a pretty abysmal run from Vettel and I can say all those stats, but it was one of those things where if you watched it week after week, it was actually more painful. Um, it looked worse in real time. Uh, a lot of bad lapses, bad mistakes. And he just seemed like a guy who had completely lost motivation. And so there's a big question of which Sebastian Vettel is going to show up at racing point. Like was the problem Ferrari? If so, then maybe everything's going to be different here. Uh, but if the, if the Vettel we've seen for the last few years is representative of a guy in decline and of diminishing passion for the sport, that's going to be an interesting vibe to have around the office. The other driver is Lance Stroll, the boss's son. Um, thing about me. I am predisposed not to think highly of this kid because he is the ultimate pay driver and like his his daddy bought him an F1 car. Like that's that's a little weird. Um he has had moments where he's looked uh pretty good. These he's at times uh amassed some decent qualifying performances, but overall he has never been a particularly standout driver. And in 2020 there's an argument to be made that he kind of wasted a good car. Um, He only had five top six finishes, uh, despite the fact that his teammate, uh, Sergio Perez, certainly gave cause to believe that the racing point was a better car than that. Um, And so you could argue that Stroll didn't make the most of that car, but there's a big asterisk. In the middle of last season, he came down with COVID. And... He not only had to sit out uh, like a race or two, but after he came back, his results were worse. Um, and one of the things we now know about COVID is that there's the point where like you're over it, you're 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 recovering from it, and then there's the point where you don't have health complications stemming from it, which is kind of a big question mark as to when and how that happens. Uh, so one of the things you could say in Stroll's defense is that. He was actually having a really good start of the season. He got sick with a disease that has a notoriously like long tail recovery. And a lot of his shakier performances came at a time when a lot of people who've come back from COVID uh, have not looked like their old selves. And so uh, it's going to be a really interesting team because they've got more money and backing behind them uh, than ever. They are better set up as a team uh, than ever before. 
but they are beholden to an owner who has a rooting interest in a son whose F1 bona fides are really not proven uh, yet. And then their old steady hand, uh, who in a typical F1 setup, you kind of sign a veteran just because you kind of know what you're going to get and they're going to generate like reliable returns. I think he might even be a bigger question mark than the kid. Uh, so Aston Martin, fascinating team uh, this season. Anything can happen. Uh, and I'm stoked. Yeah. I, I think five or six drivers got COVID last year. Mm. Um, I don't think it was that many during the season, but didn't we have a couple infections in the off season? I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's been, it's, it's, you know, like everywhere, it's been a very impactful uh, illness. Uh, It was also particularly impactful, um, you know, on, on Ferrari, of course, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, The fifth place team last year was, well, it was Renault. They've been renamed to Alpine, spelled like Alpine, but pronounced in French. Uh, their car is uh, like this electric blue with a red mm. and white tricolor accent. Uh, I, I like the livery. Um, they are a French team. Um, and for all intents and purposes, this is still just Renault. Alpine is their racing brand. Uh, Renault has been in and out of F1 in various capacities since 1977. They had a good run in the mid-2000s, their driver Fernando Alonso earning them back-to-back championships. Uh, But they dropped out for a few years, came back in 2016, and have been steadily climbing back up the ranks. They've had some rough years, uh, but they're, you know, they're finding their footing, I'd say. Um, And this year, they have reunited with Fernando Alonso, who himself is returning to Formula One after a two-year hiatus. He is a Spanish driver. Um... He didn't uh, pl- wasn't in the sport for the last two years, but he in 2018 placed 11th, driving a troubled McLaren car. Um, as mentioned, he has won two F1 championships. Though many think he is among the best drivers of all time, and may may um, have had more given uh, some better career moves. He he tends to join a career or join a team that uh, is immediately taking a dive, um, and is apparently very demanding to work with. Uh, so his teammate uh, and his team have a lot of work uh, cut out for them. Uh, his teammate is Esteban Ocon, a French driver, uh, who last year placed 12th with the team. Um, he's another of Formula One's underdog stories. His family sold their home and business and lived out of an RV, uh, towing behind a go-kart to take him to various racing events across Europe. Uh, he lost his seat at the first team that he raced for because... Uh, that rich guy, Lawrence Stroll, <laughs> bought it and placed his son there instead. Um, so he was out of the sport for a year. But he's back and has shown that he is not afraid to get his elbows out. Uh, so there's potential for fireworks with his teammate, Alonzo. Um, and we should mention, like, the, your teammate is always the one you want to beat because you are essentially uh, or, or ostensibly in identical cars. Um, but last year, he wasn't really able to keep up with his previ- previous teammate daniel ricardo so um we will see that's also uh a big question mark um how that team will go uh speaking of team woes <laughs> Rob. yeah uh so now we turn to scuderia ferrari uh the most iconic team in formula one uh by most metrics it's most successful 
and one of its most dysfunctional uh, in the <laughs> in the contemporary landscape. And we might as well start right at the top. Um, its team principal is uh, Mattia Bonato, but sort of. Ferrari is a team that has been in the process of making major restructuring moves for multiple years. This is a team that has been kind of cursed uh, with uh, several reorganizational challenges. One being that one of its mastermind architects who was supposed to take over running the entire team after stepping down from uh, the Fiat group uh, died unexpectedly during a surgery and threw an entire succession plan into chaos. Like, again, when we talk about F1 as a soap opera, like, this is both a perfect example and maybe one of the reasons we do this. Ferrari is a soap opera team, and you have, like, Shakespearean dramas play out where, like, heirs apparent will just disappear suddenly. Uh, you know, the pr- the prince that was promised will completely fall apart uh, at, the first, uh, at the first fight. And so... It becomes a the fascinating... soap opera is like it's it's dynasty. It's not like mm-hmm. you know neighbors. Yeah, um, and it, and that comes from the team itself. The team is enormously self-important. Uh, Ferrari historically has been a dominant force in the sport politically. Uh, tends to very much act as F one royalty, but that sometimes does mean that it can be hard for it to be a functional organization because there is so much expectation. Um, I think a couple of years ago, uh, somebody in the F1 world was saying that a Ferrari that doesn't win is not a Ferrari, uh, which is a b- nonsensical statement, but does give you a sense of the uh, ethos that, that people bring to work there. So anyway, the team principal, Mattia Bonato, uh, was sort of put in there and given a lot of authority uh, to oversee the team. He comes from the technical side of the team, is very well regarded. Things have been terrible uh on his watch and so last year they took huge amounts of responsibility out of his hands and basically took the technical stuff that he's supposed to be very good at out of his hands entirely and put it under a new role um a performance director uh and this person is enrico uh cardiel or cardile uh and so we have sort of a wounded leadership team at Ferrari as they're trying to figure it out and we will see if this fixes things or if it trickles down to dysfunction uh, within the team. Uh, their colors, by the way, they're the red car. They will always be the red car. Um, <laughs> their, their campaign last year uh, was pretty much an unmitigated disaster. Uh, their car has been troubled for years and then last year it was just completely uncompetitive and because ferrari supplies engines for a number of teams on the grid when the ferrari engine fell apart they took multiple teams down with them uh but arguably none were quite as punished uh as ferrari themselves um they had a pretty abysmal season we already talked about sebastian vettel uh falling apart the bright spot in the team uh, and really the reason they managed to claw their way to sixth place with 131 championship points was uh, Charles Leclerc. And he is a monogast. Is that it? Um, Monogast. Yeah. Yeah. He is, he is a monogast uh, F1 driver and one of the most promising young drivers in the sport. A lot of people peg him to be like a generational rival with Max Verstappen. They have a bit of an oil and water uh, relationship. 
And Leclerc put his mark on the team so quickly and they were so convinced that he was the future of the team that they basically bet the farm on him. They signed him to a massive contract last year and then handed Vettel his walking papers. Uh, And so Leclerc is kind of the man to beat uh, over at Ferrari and has amassed a pretty good record, even allowing for the fact he's had some bad luck uh, that's maybe even belied some of his strengths. This year, he is matched with uh, a Spanish driver, Carlos Sainz, uh, who is another guy who's amassed some really impressive uh, performances, uh, has did very well at McLaren last year. But I would not say looks to be a dominant talent uh, yet. And so I think Ferrari is coming to the season with two, with one young and one youngish. Uh, driver, either of whom could turn out to be the real deal and the backbone of a really strong like championship uh, contending team, both of whom I think could still crack and fizzle in the pressure cooker that is this toxic Ferrari environment right now. Uh, so Ferrari is a massive question mark as well, uh, but I think some of our questions are probably answered by the fact that everyone at Ferrari has spent the last year lowering expectations and basically admitting that under the current engine unit rules, Ferrari really isn't going to be very good. Uh, they have just gotten things very wrong in this era, and they are just trying to make it to the next uh, rollout of new tech specs in F1. And until then, they have they, they very much sound like a team that has made peace with being a midfield contender uh, until they get a clean sheet of paper. All right. Um Number seven last year was a team called Alpha Tauri or Alpha Tauri. You'll probably hear both of those. Uh, their car is a two-tone dark blue and white car. <clears throat> um, they also use the Honda engine uh, that uh, Danny mentioned that Red Bull uses. There is no Honda team, but they made a, an F1 engine for a while. Uh, but also, like Danny mentioned, they are out of the sport after this year. So um red bull and uh alfatari which is red bull's sister team will be basically taking all of the technical (laughs) designs from honda and building their own engine uh which is kind of wild um but uh this is an italian team um they're yeah they're based in italy and it can be a little confusing the whole sister team relationship because teams are not allowed to share technical data with each other um but they are basically owned by the same gigantic Austrian energy drink brand. Alpha Tauri <laughs> is apparently the um, the fashion brand, Red Bull's fashion brand. Uh, so if you like beige, <laughs> buy some Alpha Tauri stuff. I, I've actually tried, but they don't ship to the U.S. Um, but you would think a, a team that invested in uh, a bunch of like flashy, you know, X game style sports would have a, a more interesting. Uh, designed for their clothes but it's it's very it's very norm core they're very not cool and that's the problem they think they're fun fact i used to work for red bull um (laughs) and i would i would say that a team an organization thinks it is deeply cool and very youth oriented and is deeply uncool and out of touch is extremely on brand (laughs) (laughs) uh their drivers um 
are so the team sort of acts as a farm system for red bull uh this is where they bring drivers from outside of formula one you know formula two elsewhere uh and test them to see if they're ready to move up to the big team uh it doesn't always work yeah um case in point pierre gasly a french driver last year he placed 10th place uh he has had a real roller coaster of a career he raced for this team uh for a year and then got called up to red bull only to get bumped back down halfway through the season for failing to match match um uh, the alien max verstappen uh amazingly once he was back with his old team he got a thrilling podium um something that he was not able to do at red bull the following year last year he continued with uh, alpha tauri and scored a win uh in an amazing fashion um i think he's a really solid racer and is just further proof that red bull's pressure cooker often crushes drivers rather than extracting their best performance unless your name is max verstappen um his teammate is a rookie named yuki Tsunoda, a japanese driver and the youngest driver on the grid born in the year 2000 oh don't be telling me that Jeez. oh yes uh, he's also the shortest driver at five foot two or 159 centimeters. Mm. Um, he uh, is pretty talented. He went from Japanese Formula Four to Formula One in three years, which is pretty fast. Uh, he came third in Formula Two last year. Uh, and uh, I was kind of amazed to learn no Japanese driver has ever won a Formula One race. So could he be? the first yeah but many one of them has been hit by a support car so there's always that (laughs) that's true yeah uh real real ebbs and flows um but yeah i i from what little i've seen of yuki danny you watched more formula 2 than i have yeah that was a uh, very competitive f2 as well so like he was winning races and he was up there for a lot of it and he was probably one of the more consistent third place kind of like he was he was sort of like more of a prost than some you know some of the the eventual winner who we'll talk to about in a second um but yeah very stable uh but but you know i think he's a, he's there was a lot of fighters in that pack so it's going to be interesting to see what they're like in f1 when maybe they can't be as elbows out as some of them were in f2 yeah um next up rob so next up we've got alpha romeo Whoa. they also exist no, it's, <laughs> they are a um, so they are basically the junior team to Ferrari. This is a relatively newish development in F1. Alfa Romeo used to be an independent team uh, known as Sauber, uh, which was a Swiss team, and they were never terribly uh, competitive and were often in financial difficulties. This ended up with them substantially being bought out. Uh, and placed under uh, the under a different brand uh, of Ferrari, uh, Alfa Romeo, and there isn't a whole lot that's interesting about this team. Uh, and it, like it starts from their color scheme; they're they're just red and white, um, and they're <laughs> it's a really nondescript car uh, on on the track uh, in in the right lighting that that red just completely disappears and so they look like any number of other uh white cars on on the grid and the results have been similarly undistinguished um however there here is where i do find this team interesting alfa romeo had a bad car last year 
uh, again, in part because Ferrari engines, anyone running a Ferrari engine has just been hosed. Um, and so the Alfa Romeo was kind of going to be hobbled from the start uh, down in power, and then they have a smaller budget to begin with. With that in mind, I think you could say that their two drivers did the best they could. Their, their two drivers are the old Ferrari warhorse, uh, Kimi Raikkonen, and a promising-ish uh, young Italian dri- driver, uh, Antonio Giovinazzi. Now, here's what I will say. Giovinazzi, I think, looked like a complete damp squib uh, in F1 at first. But I ended up watching a lot of his starts last year because I noticed there was a phenomenon where, like, he would have bad race finishes. But early in the race, he would be in shockingly high positions from where he had started. And so I ended up watching a fair number of his early laps. Antonio Giovinazzi might be the best driver on the grid in terms of starting races and just like first three lap killer instinct. Um, Man, those sprint races, he wants them. I'm saying mm-hmm. like if there is anybody who's like praying for sprint races, uh, it's Giovinazzi because <laughs> like that would seriously alter the trajectory of his career. Um, so, yeah, it's um, Giovinazzi ended up being really evenly matched with his teammate last year. Like he didn't look really that deficient Uh, in both Giovinazzi and Raikkonen's cases. The evil was clearly their car. Uh, Both of them had drives where they put the car in good positions. And then that car would just get reeled in um, on straight on on straights uh, because it just didn't have the power to stay ahead of the competition. And so I think Alfa Romeo is a team that, Probably is not going to have a terribly exciting or uplifting year uh, because a lot of these problems are not solvable uh, for the team. And Ferrari doesn't appear to be very close to solving them either. Uh, so they're kind of stuck with this lineup. Uh, the lineup is fine. They're, they're stuck with this car. Uh, Giovinazzi, you know, if he gets other parts of his game together, uh, he could be pretty credible. Raikkonen is interesting because he's almost an F1 mascot at this point. Uh, he is extremely experienced. He's old as hell. Is one of the singular characters in F1. Just a has profoundly weird charisma, uh, but it is real. <laughs> um, there is something engaging about the guy because he so clearly doesn't seem to care about anything but just driving a car. Uh, but he's he's getting on in years. Uh, a lot of his best victories are behind him. Um, he's not being given the chance to compete in a good car anymore. And last year, I think you'd probably see a little bit of fall off in performance. Uh, however, you know, you did have flashes of greatness. Uh, like, you know, he was at the spa track last year, chased down both the Ferraris, and uh, eventually ran his teammate off the road just through pure intimidation. So, like, on his day, uh, Raikkonen can be really great, but uh, neither of these guys has a very good car. Speaking of which, uh, the ninth place team, Haas. Uh, Their car is, um, this year, it's white with what I would call a Russian flag accent. Um, They have The uh, the American team. Yeah, they're they're F1's only American team. They <laughs> are running the Ferrari engine. <sighs> I used to really like this team. Um, oh no! They are owned by uh, an American company, which makes manufacturing robots. Um, uh, Haas uh, they also they also you may know them from um, a NASCAR team. It's the same Haas, uh, different Haas from Newman Haas in IndyCar. However, <laughs> um, 
so they make manufacturing stuff, but ironically, they combat F1's enormous costs by buying as many parts from other teams as they can. Um, so in the early days, it sort of reminded me of, you know, the, the, the Silicon Valley garage startup mm. kind of mythology. Uh, if you've watched Drive to Survive, you'll probably remember that their team principal, uh, Gunther Steiner, is a very animated guy with an Austrian accent who curses like a sailor. Um, but that's kind of where the fun part ends. They have had some bad cars recently, um, probably because of their small budget, and have already said that this year is going to be a write-off because they're already focusing on 2022, so it doesn't look to be getting any better anytime soon. Awesome. Um, additionally, one of their two rookie drivers has become probably the most hated person in Formula 1 before he's even gotten into the sport. Uh, Russian driver Nikita Mazepin last year posted a video of himself on Instagram groping a woman in the back of a car. Uh, for me, that is bad enough, but since then he has issued a string of non-apologies where he just says stuff like, I know what I did was wrong and I have learned from it. Uh, Haas has only said that they've handled the matter internally with no other explanation. Um, F1 and their governing body, the FIA, haven't done anything besides condemn his actions, uh, so it just sucks all around. Uh, this year's livery is basically just the Russian flag and the sponsor Eurokali, which is a Russian fertilizer company controlled predominantly by a billionaire named Dmitry Mazepin. Any relation? So, yeah. Uh, sport imitating life, a Russian influence on an American enterprise, and overlooking a sex pest because his family is powerful. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. The only shining oh. light here is their other driver, Mick Schumacher. Um, oh, and Mick. if the name sounds familiar... It's because he is the son of Michael Schumacher, the only dr other driver with seven championships, uh, who is kind of, you know, the, the closest thing uh, F1 has to to royalty at this stage. Mm. Uh, Mick has one championship. That's not, well, Lewis is a sir, but um, <laughs> the, the, the Michael Schumacher legend is is deeply embedded in the uh, uh, the myth of F1. Um Mick has won championships in Formula 3 and Formula 2, so hopefully he can wipe the floor with Mazepin, uh, but it'll be tough because he's still driving a Haas. Um, one more note about Mazepin. He technically can't race under the Russian flag because the World Anti-Doping Agency has banned all Russian athletes from competing in sport until 2023. Uh, instead, he'll probably be something like a neutral athlete from Russia, uh, interestingly, that same agency is looking into whether Haas is actually allowed to have those Russian flags on their car for the same reason. So, uh, good times all around. Yeah. Imagine good Gunter Steiner was so lucky with Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen past couple of years. They were good boys, you know, Roman, and, and now he's got, I mean, what a weird, like dichotomy that is Mick Schumacher and like Mick Schumacher who like won the championship and just like cried and hugged his team oh, you, can't, Madison. you can't win because like everyone's just gonna be like if Schumacher does well anyone is like everyone's just gonna be like how soon can we get him out of that team uh yeah. and so like any success he enjoys will not be credited to Haas and people will be like he does see he does deserve better than than this um and in the meantime you're just you're just handcuffed uh to this dude who not only, uh, yeah, revealed himself to be a sex pest and posted it on Instagram, but also is apparently like too stubborn or too stupid to like handle the matter even 
approaching like properly like he can't even do he can't even do the insincere pr dance that yeah. like most professional athletes are at least capable of putting on in this situation and, and, like, and outside of that before any of this he is a known quantity on the racetrack as somebody right. you want to stay away from because he mm-hmm. is aggressive and reckless and you know he's it, punched so drivers after races yeah like he's given black eyes and you know he's He's just like he is a cartoon villain in a sport yeah. where, you know, there's not really a shortage of those weekend to weekend. But he's coming in with a sort of a force that we're not really um, used to. Uh, bad news for Haas, but it might be good news for one team. Williams, the last <laughs> team we're going to talk about because they were last. And they've they've been but they've been really good at being last for the past couple of years. Um those things might change because there's been a fairly significant shakeup uh, over at Williams. Williams are this year sort of getting rid of the old colors and arguably going to even older colors by sort of donning the blue uh, with accents of white and yellow, uh, which is sort of like a throwback to the glory years. Uh, they used to be owned by the Williams family, Sir Frank Williams, who is a ex-racing uh, driver himself. Um, his daughter, Claire Williams, was the uh, uh, owner and sort of, uh, or I guess she, they were, you know, she was sort of doing the job for Frank. I think technically he was the owner that whole time. Um, but uh, they are, they sold the company, they sold the team, and also uh, Claire could have stayed, but she also left. So basically the company is now run by a U.S. investment firm called Darrington Capital. They are based in Grove in Oxfordshire beside a, a military base. Um, last year they got zero points. Plum last zip i think right yeah they yep did. they have a mercedes engine but it's clearly in the wrong box <laughs> so <laughs> that hasn't helped much um and they have two drivers the same two drivers from last year would you believe in all of the sort of lemon lemon dance uh jiggery pokery that's been going on uh these two young whippersnappers are still here tell um, them of my son <laughs> Uh, who, which one's your son? <laughs> Russell. Russell's your boy? Okay. He's a, he came 18th last year, just three points higher than his teammate. He's English. He is uh, another one of these kind of like a Mick Schumacher scenario where he is an incredibly good talent who is stuck at a at a underperforming team. Maybe not underperforming team, just a bad team. Um, he sort of been was almost pegged to take the second seat at Mercedes. That's how good he is. But you know, there's a lot of life left in that young fella. There's a lot of seasons left in him, hopefully, and you know he'll have his chance. For now, he's still at Williams, uh, riding alongside the Canadian, or I guess Iranian Canadian, but he flies under the Canadian flag uh, of Nicholas Latifi, who came 21st last year. And I have a in my notes here. I have an empty bullet point. Because that's what comes to mind when I think about <laughs> Nicholas Latifi. He's a perfectly nice guy, but he has the charisma of a, you know, I don't know. I am realizing, like a, I'm sitting here and realizing I don't know what he looks like. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> Latifi. He's a perfectly lovely guy. I love every interview. He so they do these um, videos on the F1 YouTube channel where they you know interview everyone post qualifying and they do it in order. So you always get, you know, the pole position at the front and generally you get a little bit of Nicholas Latifi right at the end and they only ever give him like six seconds. 
Like it's just like he just said something and then he's gone again. So I, I have nothing against Nicholas TV. I think he's a nice guy, but he he you will you will he is not evil enough. He is not good enough. He is not young enough. He is a perfectly good default character if you're playing the <laughs> well, F one. It's just um, like I think sometimes to the detriment of the sport and the people who follow it, uh, and I'm guilty of this too, it's very easy to get caught up in like looking at F1 as a series of narratives. And that is like confirmation bias central where you just are no longer. Yeah. And I like, I struggle against this mightily where I just have an idea of like, yeah, here's, here's what, who the characters are in F1. And that knowledge will sort of blind me to how things are changing on the track. Latifi's stuck in a team that's been garbage. And yeah. he can't distinguish himself. And meantime, he is paired with a dude who has been tapped by multiple people as maybe the best driver of that generation. He just doesn't have the drive to show it yet. Uh, but so all the attention is on Russell because Russell seems like somebody who, if he were in any other car but a Williams, would be a demon on track. Mm. He's stuck in this Williams. And every week, he's almost doing something interesting with that Williams. Yeah. Um, and Latifi is just the dude who isn't that good. <laughs> um, driving a car equally as trash. And so I think like, unless the new ownership can get some results, but again, the lowering expectation ge- expectations game, they have also said we're basically taking a knee this year and focusing on new technical revisions uh, for the coming seasons. Um, it seems like Latifi is just going to be another dude who was also keeping a seat warm at uh, Williams. And we will see, what he's got to bring to the table as soon as they build a good car. He's probably the most experienced person of blue flags though. So we have to give him that. Um, we'll talk about the that, flags yeah. uh, later on as well. George Russell though, last year had one of the wildest races uh, I can remember where Lewis Hamilton got COVID. So they dropped him into the best car on the grid. Uh, and he, Made this move on Valtteri Bottas, his Mercedes teammate for that race, off the top rope, like an amazing pass. Uh, and just he, some circumstances happened where he didn't, um, the, the team messed up and he didn't get to to get a win or even on the podium. He had to like um, schlep it home at the, at the back of the pack. Mm. Um, so it was just crushing. But like he showed that like Russell is for real. Well, he did. And he also binned it onto the safety car. So. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true, but uh, as God, who was it uh, who who said uh, every good driver needs to do that at least once? Uh, was it the right. Alvatari? Sounds like Brundle. Sounds like Roman Grosjean. Oh, sounds yeah. like Tost. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but also remember yeah. when Russell had that great drive in uh, Hamilton's Mercedes, he is taller than than Hamilton, and so that's remember right. he was wedged into that car uh, and basically like having his knees steadily like abraded to nubs uh, because he's just scrunched in there uh, trying to work the pedals. Um, So, yeah. All right. A good, so those are the teams and the drivers, man. It always Um, takes so long that bit. (laughs) Yeah. But I like, it's, it's great. It's a great refresher for me just to like uh, set, set all the stage for everything. And I'm getting very excited. I'm getting very excited, Danny, for these, uh, 23 races yes in f1 we like to race around the world and we're going to be doing a lot of that uh this year too um okay first of all 
big asterisks on this. Last year, of course, we did the calendar and then the calendar got shattered by the global pandemic. Maybe you heard of it that occurred um, kind of around the time the F1 <laughs> season starts. Uh, right around Melbourne, the, um, a couple of McLaren engineers got sick and the whole thing went to pot. So the day uh, of the race. Yes, yes. They were exactly. like, oh, by the way, we're not doing that anymore. So it was super Spy last everybody. minute and already this year. So we had lots of movement last year. We had a bunch of new tracks come in. We had a bunch of returning classic tracks come back on the calendar. Um, and that's kind of happening this year. We have 23 races, which is the most they've ever had. Legally, they're not allowed to have more than 25. 20 was already sort of a lot. 21 was a lot. 23 is really starting to push it. I imagine some of these won't happen. And we've already had changes too. China has been cancelled already. And a bunch of races that we generally have at the start of the year, I'm looking at you, Australia, have been moved to later in the year. Uh, in fact, as recently as last week, another, uh, uh, the third race of the season was added to the calendar. So these may change. Um, they probably will change. Uh, but uh, as Drew said at the top, they run from the end of March all the way to mid-December with a little bit of a gap um, in the, I guess, August um, for, for a mid-season gap. And I'm going to go through where we are going and those circuits. Are we allowed to react um, in real time and just like cheer or boo? Absolutely. That's what it's all about. <laughs> um, we are starting in Bahrain, where we ended almost last year. We had two races, the last, uh, well, the second to last and third to last races of last year at the Bahrain International Circuit on the 20th of March. Bahrain's cool. Current, yeah, Bahrain's a good, decent track. It's a good night it's, race. It looks cool. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is. It was sort of given its night race status uh, on its, was it 10th anniversary was when they did it? Or maybe the 5th anniversary? I, I feel forget. like it was it younger than, like than 10 years, but yeah. Uh, it was a yeah, really I, unremarkable I, daytime race that looked ugly. And they moved yeah. it tonight, and I was like, ooh la la. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's given us a lot of fun races. And the secure one they did last year was, uh, was a bunch of fun too. Uh, then we are going to Italy for the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix, uh, better known as Imola on the 18th of April. We all liked Imola last year, didn't we? We did. Drivers, Some drivers complained, right? Where it was like, that's not a... No, the drivers enjoyed driving it. People just complained that it wasn't like a modern track and it was bad for overtaking. But like, yeah. what else is new in F1? Exactly. <laughs> last year, we were also like dying for any new tracks. So who knows how we'll feel this year. But it was fun. Uh, speaking of new tracks, we are going back to Portimao. We're going to the Algarve, the southern tip of Portugal for the Portuguese Grand Prix on the 2nd of May. This one just got added back in. We all loved it. Um, Mm -hmm. So very excited to see us go back there. Uh, We are staying on the Iberian Peninsula for the next race. And uh, the Spanish Grand Prix at the Circuit de Barcelona, Catalonia on the 7th of May. This one, uh, you know, sort of another elder statesman of the season. It's where they generally had done testing. Um, And... uh, yeah, we're, we all sort of like Barcelona, right? Yeah, it's I mean, fine. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> it's if you've played any racing game, you've 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 raced that circuit. Like they, that is licensed in every racing game under the sun. Basically, uh, it's it's a challenging track, um, but I'm not sure it generates a ton of amazing action. Mm. They usually had a lot of good fans, but probably yeah. not this year. Um, the next four races are all. Uh, oh. Ones we did not have oh. last year, which we generally do. 
Some of them are oh, beloved, no. some of them less so. Uh, <laughs> the first one is the Monaco Grand Prix in Monte Carlo, the sort of city-state on the southern edge of the Mediterranean coast of France. Um, that is on the 23rd of May, very famous circuit, uh, sort of does not even, would not be legal in F1 if it was added today, but a sort of given special dispensation because it's one of the most iconic races in the world. It's like uh, the center. There, we have to pretend it's still like relevant and important, important <laughs> and, makes, and makes sense just because we're stuck with it. Uh, exactly. But it is not a good place to run a race. No, street course is not all that um, uh, common in, on the, in terms of new Right, uh, new tracks but uh, the next one is another one that only got added in the past you know was it four maybe this is the fifth year we've run the uh, Azerbaijan Grand Prix previously known as the European Grand Prix uh, in uh, Baku Azerbaijan uh, it's another city circuit on the 6th of June it's uh, provided some interesting races it runs uh, boomer as, bust yes it is you're right so we'll see this year I think the um, fact that it is it is such a weird feature. You drive through a castle, and the fact yeah. that it is so tight that somebody had a famous accident there because their sim was like a quarter inch wrong in its model <laughs> of how that turn worked. That he ended up just like shattering his car in the run up Amazing. to this castle door. Um, that's cool as hell, and I think it makes for an interesting race. Uh, so yeah, props to props to Baku. It does look. It remind me of a Mario Kart track at, at times for that reason. Yeah, it's a it's a fun one, and like all street circuits, the 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 you know amount of error, the move, the error, you know what's the phrase, man, my brain, the the margin, margin for error, error yeah. is very 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 small. Um, speaking of margins for er- errors and walls, uh, we're off to uh, Canada then, where the Wall of Champions is uh, for the uh, Circuit Gilles Villeneuve. Uh, which is in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Um, super race on an island. Everyone's a fan of that one, I think, on June 13th. Then we're off to uh, the French Grand Prix, bizarrely. We're going back to France, having been in Monaco mere weeks earlier. Uh, we are going to almost the exact same part of France for the uh, Circuit Paul Ricard um, in Le Castellet for the French Grand Prix on the 27th. Of June, and this sort of uh, is, I guess, or this is now the European part of the calendar as it is now. So hopefully, Europe's got its shit together. But, Starts uh, with a banger. Yeah. Oh God, I hate the, the Paul Ricard so much. Yeah, no one likes the circuit. It's um, it was a it was a one good cancellation we had last year, but it know, feels as ever. It feels like an autocross track that someone was like, yeah, we could run an F one race in this parking lot, and so yeah. now we run an F one race in a parking lot. If you like um, runoff areas, then, uh, you know, maybe after Azerbaijan, Monaco and Canada, people need a little bit of runoff, you know. Um, After that, we are off to Red Bull's circuit, the Red Bull ring in Spielberg for the Austrian Grand Prix on the 4th of July. The most beautiful track. Reliably throwing up great races, despite not seeming like it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Hungara ring that way, where we where it was something, I don't know what's going on, but some something in the water up there, something in the alpine water, alpine water. Uh, then we're off to... Don't pee uh, in the water. <laughs> the British Grand Prix, it's Silverstone on the 18th of July. Silverstone was one of a couple of tracks last year that we had double headers at. We'll be there for one time uh, this year before we go to the Hungara ring on the 1st of August, which is in Hungary for the Hungarian Grand Prix. Um, I like that track. I like Silverstone. They're kind of not that dissimilar. 
this whole section of European sort of out in the middle of nowhere tracks. And then sure. we are off to Spa Francorchamps for the Belgian Grand Prix on the 29th. This is sort of one of the most iconic tracks, again, in F1, um, much like Monaco is, but unlike Monaco, it is incredibly long. It is uh, the one of the longest tracks. It is the longest track, I think, isn't China just underneath it, um, of the circuit uh, up in the Ardennes Forest in Belgium. So uh, lots of beautiful helicopter shots you will enjoy. Uh, then we are off to Zandvoort, which was a track we have had in the past with the Dutch Grand Prix. Um, Long time ago. Uh, yes, it was supposed to come back last year and be a sort of returning track to the calendar, having been off the uh, the F1 calendar for a long time. But it obviously didn't happen with COVID, so it will be again the return to the Dutch Grand Prix in Zandvoort on the 5th of September. Um, then we're off to Italy again, having just been there earlier in the season for Imola. Uh, for This is the... I guess, Italian Grand Prix, um, and not the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix, as the other one's known. Um, Monza has always been, uh, and it's another sort of classic track in F1. Um, again, throws up interesting races. Last year's race was superb and had a, an outsider winning, um, which everyone enjoyed. Then we're off to Russia, to the Sochi Autodrome, uh, up in the, you know, the sort of uh, holiday uh, town of Sochi, where they also had the Olympics. A number of years this track ago. sucks. Yeah, it's not a great track. It's flat as a pancake. It's uh, hard to discern what turn is what when you're watching on television. I'm not a big fan <laughs> of it. If Paul Ricard is like, we set up a racing track in the parking lot, uh, Sochi is the mall that the parking lot is outside <laughs> yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It has the first turn, the second and third turn is interesting. That That's cool. One. That part is cool. The drivers yeah. complain yeah, about it. Yeah, it's like racing around it. They do. Yeah. I like that. The rest of it's, yeah, nonsense. But there you go. Um, then we're off to another street circuit. So actually, weirdly enough, Sochi, the track is built in the you know middle of nowhere, but um, it is actually technically a street circuit. And so is Singapore, which is also done at nighttime. It was the original night race, the Marina Bay Street Circuit. This is one which has a real big question mark when it comes to COVID uh, plastered all over it because it is in the middle of the city and it's a populated city. It's not so much like Monaco, which is a little bit, you know, it's not a very big town, so you can get away with it. Singapore, you know, obviously it's pretty big um, where they have this. So we'll see about that. 3rd of October is when it's uh, penned in. And then we're off to Japan, to Suzuka. To, sorry, Suzuka, which is in Mie Prefecture. Ah, thank I made you. sure to look up. <laughs> sure. Mm. Um, on the 10th of October, we all love Japan, right? It's, it's Suzuka's a fun track. Yeah. Uh, and then it, hopefully, it's the only figure eight. It goes underneath itself, which is cool. It does. It does. It has lots of interesting named turns as well, which we'll get into in our pre race track walks, which we do here on Shift F1. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, then we're hopefully coming back to the United States, to the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, 24th of October. Uh, it's a fun track. Um, Seven Drew have been there. It's. Um, a good race usually has, you know, it's a lot of fun to be there. Hopefully there won't be a snowstorm during it, as Austin yeah. apparently now gets. Um, hopefully it happens. We'll have to wait and see. And we're sort of sticking in the Americas for a little while here. We're off to Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez in Mexico City for the Mexican Grand Prix. Um, maybe it'll be, you know, considering where Sergio Perez is, what car he's in might be very interesting uh, he obviously is the the main man in mexico when it comes to racing fans 
And that circuit's interesting. It's it's not it, all it that. It drives through part of an old baseball stadium, which is fun. Yeah, it does a little bit of a little bit of a random turn in a baseball stadium. It's such a weird. It definitely looks like you're just driving into a baseball stadium. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Um, and we're our sort of American road trip south continues as we go to uh, Jose Carlos Pace. Sorry, Pache, uh, better known as Interlagos in Sao Paulo for the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. Thankfully, still on the calendar. We had a bit of a worry last year that it was going to get moved um, uh, or, or deleted, but that hasn't happened. The 7th of November. It used to be the, the final race of the year back in days gone. But uh, there are three more after it. Uh, the first of which is usually the opening track of the year is the Australian Grand Prix in Albert Park, Melbourne, which is now penned in on the 21st of November. It was the first race cancelled last year, but the teams were all there. They were all in Australia once COVID started to sort of dawn on everyone, per se, um, and it got cancelled. So we're not used to seeing it there, so that should be interesting. We're also not used to seeing the next track, uh, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, which is uh, new to the calendar this year. This was not one from last year, if I'm r- correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, it's a street circuit, the Jeddah street circuit. It's penned for the 5th of December. Expect lots of controversy um, around that. Uh, you know, we'll, we get into it here on the podcast, but obviously when it comes to women's rights uh, with cars and just the, you know, general assassination of people who, you know, don't agree with your regime, there's a lot going on there. Oh, yeah. Um, and we so, don't actually uh, know what the circuit is going to look like yet. We do not, know. It's uh, a street circuit, which they sort of generally get thrown together. It's harder to sort of, <laughs> you know, do a dummy run on a street circuit. Um, in fact, the other street circuit, which we were supposed to have last year, which you may notice has not been mentioned, the Hanoi street circuit in Vietnam, um, is not on the calendar this year. It's probably never happening because the person who was in charge of liaising with uh, Formula One has been arrested on corruption charges, I believe, and cool. is maybe going cool. to jail. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, once we're done with Jeddah, we are staying in the Gulf, uh, swapping coasts over to the United Arab Emirates for our final race of the year, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix at Yas Marina Circuit on Yas Island, Abu Dhabi, for the on the 12th of December. It's where we had our last race just a couple of months ago. And I swear, hopefully, we will have our final race of a very long 2021 F1 season. Whew. That is a very long season, uh, particularly for the engines. And we alluded to this a little bit, uh, but one of the major features of F1, as opposed to earlier eras in the sport, is that now you have to run the same group of engines uh, at the from the beginning to the end of the season. You are only allowed, I think, three engines to get through the entire season with uh, for, for race days. And that's a lot of races for <laughs> uh, an, an engine to cover. And on yeah. top of that, modern Formula One engines are probably the most complicated engines in motorsport, um, especially now that endurance racing has changed its specifications uh, where that was maybe where you saw the most technology. Now it's probably F1. And I think this might also be being simplified uh, in a few years time when new engine regulations come in. But for the moment, the thing to bear in mind about formula one engines is they have to do 
a tremendous amount of work over the course of the season in that they are incredibly complicated because they are hybrid engines. Uh, and they're hybrids along a couple different axes. Um, so they have an internal combustion uh, component to the engine, but they also have two forms of energy recovery that they use to deploy uh, battery-powered uh, energy to the car as well. Uh, they have an MGUK, uh, which is a uh, kinetic, injury, kinetic energy recovery unit. So when the car is braking, uh, the braking action winds up uh, like a flywheel and basically converts that into electrical in energy for a battery to, de to be deployed uh, elsewhere. Meanwhile, uh, the cars also harvest heat uh, being generated by the engines and also use that to charge the battery. The kinetic energy recovery aspect is, I think, the more solved problem, technically speaking. Um, that is pro like all of these things can have things go wrong with them, but it is in the modern F1 era, it is the thermal energy recovery system that has often been one of the most challenging parts of the engine to maintain reliability. Uh, but there are many other exciting ways that these, these engines can fail. Uh, for one thing, um, there are a lot of really specific technical rules about how the, how much of the energy can be harvested, stored and deployed over the course of a lap. Uh, and basically what you have is, a power unit that barely even called engines anymore because really only part of it is a traditional engine. Uh, but the entire power unit has to be sort of balancing uh, these loads of where energy is coming in from, where it is being stored, and where it is being deployed. Uh, it has to be doing that all the time, and it has to be doing that in such a way that it is not overloading the battery and degrading it. Uh, but also that it is not starving the battery and hitting a point where it is running out of battery power at any point during the lap when the car is making a call for that energy. One of the reasons you see Mercedes win championship after championship is because by and large, they built the best engine a number of years ago and have just been refining it. And it is both powerful in performance and powerful in reliability. Everyone else has struggled to achieve uh, both the power and reliability parts of these equations. Uh, but even Mercedes struggles with this at times because it is such a long season. And so you will watch uh, over the course of a year, you will often hear drivers on the radio talking about, you know, they will either feel they are losing too much speed when the uh, kinetic energy recovery system is operating, or they will feel they're not getting all the power they're supposed to because somewhere you're getting power cuts uh, from the battery. And so the state of the battery and its many, many components is an ongoing psychodrama uh, in every F1 race because a lot of this is stuff you can just feel, but you aren't sure of it yet. The drivers will often be very alarmed about any sort of just weird sensation uh, regarding the power of their vehicle. So that is one thing to keep an eye out for uh, in F1. There's, I don't think there's any other racing series that runs, runs an engine like this. Um, and so it's a, uh, it, it's a very demanding technical problem F1 has set down and people are struggling to solve it. Um, the 
engine is also tied up to another major political aspect of a formula one we've talked about how the engine suppliers are big players in the teams a lot of teams are purchasing their engines secondhand uh honda entered the sport as an engine supplier and is now leaving the sport the future of their engine operation is unclear um a number of teams feel that the engine contest has been so thoroughly won by mercedes that the sport is currently uncompetitive for them and so there is uh, a coming engine freeze arriving where the uh, development of engine upgrades is going to be sharply curtailed or frozen entirely uh, to keep costs down and maybe allow performance to converge a bit. Uh, but yeah, the supply of the engines themselves has become a major political arena for F1. Uh, and again, it is because of the complexity and expense of these things. Um a lot of teams that are being called on, a lot of organizations that are being called on to manufacture engines for customer teams don't even want to because it's such a narrow margin, uh, expensive thing to deal in. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for those engines uh, because they go wrong in all sorts of ways and they determine a lot of what you see on the track. The other part of this, um, in terms of straight line speed, Formula One has something called the drag reduction system. And that is most of the downforce on an F1 car is generated by their rear wing. Uh, it is basically an inverted airplane wing where as the car picks up speed, the lift, instead of being pushed under the wing and like sort of lifting the uh, aerodynamic surface off, off the ground, it's actually flipped here and it presses the car further down uh, into the ground to generate more grip. That generates more grip, but it slows the car down. You are introducing drag uh, in order to create that downforce. You don't need downforce on a straight line. So one of the things that F1 has introduced to try and make passing easier, because these cars are so aerodynamically sensitive, is they invented a system whereby that rear wing can just pop open and basically go straight into the air, uh, meaning it's almost like invisible to the air. Um, and the car can pick up a tremendous amount of speed on these straights. The catch is this only deploys if you are within one second of the car ahead of you when you roll through a detection zone, uh, which often precedes the straight. In general, what this this means is uh, if you can just, if, if you are in a pursuing car, if you can just claw within one second of somebody as you go through the detection zone, when you enter the straight, say you both have equal engines, you will get the drag reduction uh, system like bonus, basically, and you will be able to deploy it to overtake the car ahead of you. And so they will be driving with their wing, um, with their wing down and all that extra drag, you as the car overtaking suddenly get this massive speed boost uh, down the straight. This advantages cars with really good straight line speed, but it advantages just about everybody uh, who can get within that striking distance. Um, some people find this a little gimmicky. It is a little <laughs> gimmicky, and there are times, there, there, there are some circuits where it can feel a bit like the DRS system creates really predictable sorts of racing where there's not a lot of craft to it. Somebody just rolls up behind you. They pop their wing open in the DRS yeah. zone 
and they do the pass. And because they China got that, yeah, is one. There's a couple, yeah. On the other hand, F1 had to do something, and this was the solution to enable <laughs> a little more passing. And there is an entire chess game about keeping people behind you and trying to game that detection zone. Usually, each circuit has two uh, DRS zones uh, where passing is sort of supercharged this way. Uh, I think they've introduced three at some circuits, right? Yeah, they're trying to do more and more. Yeah, yeah, three, three at a bunch of them now. Yeah, yeah. The the catch is it works better on long straights because um, you do, do need a bit of a run to take advantage of it. And the other thing is, um, when that wing snaps down, it's like an anchor is being thrown behind your car. And sometimes, if you don't have a lot of like runoff or it catches you off guard a little bit, um, the whole thing can unsettle the car and lead to some pretty spectacular uh, errors or mistakes, um, which can be kind of cool or gnarly, depending on uh, how it all plays out. The other big determinant of F1 performance is uh, tires and tire strategy. Mm. So... This is where this is where we start losing people. I always feel like right. This is where they, you kind of, you need a little bit of experience, uh, seeing how it can play out to kind of get the vocabulary of how yeah. it all works. Right. It is, and it, it like, I watched the sport for years, and I find this stuff a hell of a lot easier when I have like a circuit map with me, and I have like sh- sheets with like the times the cars are posting. Uh, mm. So it's very complicated to keep all this in your head. Here's the deal. Um, tires are where the car's mechanical grip as opposed to the aerodynamic grip is generated. Um, it is probably the place where you can sort of cheat the laws of physics the most. For instance, if you want to just take a corner faster than somebody, you can take that. If your tires are good, you can probably take that corner faster than somebody. The problem is that is going to put more stress and wear and tear on the tires. And so the tires will wear out. The rubber will very quickly abrade uh, off the tires. And over the course of a race, so much rubber gets like shredded off these things that you get um, off. Like there's called the racing line, which is the optimal path around the circuit. And then off the racing line, there are the marbles where all that discarded rubber ends up accumulating. Uh, but the thing is F1 drivers can cheat a little bit using their tires for a little bit of extra grip. You break a little later if you're willing to take it out on your tires, but you will sort of pay for that down the road because now your tires won't be as good for as long. And so the most successful drivers tend to be people who can basically tune their driving style to whatever their tires need at that moment without taking any excess wear on those tires to maintain speeds. Hamilton is probably the best person in the game at this. And oftentimes you will see there are people who are for a few laps can be competitive on that level, but they can't do it without taking life out of their tires. The complicating factor of all this is that the current F1 tires are made by a company called Pirelli, and they're notoriously finicky uh, to the point where some teams have said directly that these tires have destroyed their ability to race uh, because they are designed not to be the best tire you could make, 
but to be the most interesting from a racing standpoint. <laughs> and to give you an idea of how, again, sort of gimmicky F1 can be, Pirelli makes five tire compounds of different hardness. A softer tire, as you might imagine, is a little grippier. It's like having a softer uh, sole of your sneaker where it gives you a little bit more stop and start. But the treads on your sneaker will wear away. The same thing will happen on an F1 car where that softer rubber will just wear away very quickly. Um, The harder compounds will last much longer, but will be slower around the circuit. All these things react differently to different track temperatures and different, um, like, how good is the road surface on a circuit? This turns out to matter a ton for tire life. Um, But you are required to run two different compounds during each race. And by the way, of the five that Pirelli manufactures, only three are even allowed at each race. There's a soft compound, a, a medium compound, and a hard compound. Um... You have to use two of those compounds, and so you're introduced to this concept of tire strategy. At what point of the race will you use your softer compound, and at what point of the race will you do your change and use your harder compound, or vice versa? Um, Remember as well that the cars can't refuel, and so the cars are much heavier and therefore harder to move around the track at the start of the race. And so we get to tire strategy where there's this entire game being played as people try to figure out what is the optimal way to schedule your pit stops and tell your drivers to handle the car based on how your car is performing with the current compounds that are brought to the track. Um, There's a quick wrinkle here I want to add. We talked about the qualifying process. The people in the top 10 positions... Uh, who made it to Q3, they all get to, they, they all have to start on the tires they qualified with in Q2. The people who didn't make the top 10 get a free choice. So if you start P11 behind, you basically get to start the race on whatever tire you want. Um, it can be, you know, you, you, have, you have freedom of choice. The people in the top 10 have to start on a used tire uh, from the previous day's action. So, this all leads us to tire strategy and pit stops. Um, Pit stops are one of the most crucial parts of F1 because there is a speed limit in the pit lane. Uh, In addition to that, things can go wrong whenever you are changing tires on a car or making adjustments. And so, uh, at the very least, if everything goes well... You'll often see teams posting pit stops that are sub three seconds. So a car comes in and is only stationary for less than three seconds. And in those three seconds, all four tires are changed. They're back on their way. However, even with that sort of speed, the speed limit in the pit lane means that you are still massively slower than the slowest car on track uh, as as it's going around. And so you see massive reshuffles of the field uh, as everyone sort of schedules their pit stops and reacts. The other thing is that teams are all watching what each other are doing and they're all trying to see like how different tire strategies are playing out. There are advantages to being able to sort of sit back and watch how track conditions are changing. And there are advantages to being first to move and sort of surprising everybody with your strategy. Uh, You will see both play out, but this becomes particularly salient 
when weather is changeable. Um, mm. In part because the one case in which you don't have to change compounds is when there's been rain. F1 cars have two kinds of wet weather tires. Intermediate, which is for like lighter rain or misting conditions. And then they have uh, full wet tires, which basically look like street tires. Uh, full treads. Um, they move a lot of water uh, off the track and out of the car's way. Um, the trick is that if there's not enough moisture on the circuit, they wear away very quickly and they basically turn to crap very quickly uh, and become completely undrivable. And so whenever there's like chance of rain or there has been rain or rain is letting up, uh, strategy becomes completely chaotic because now everyone is trying to figure out how wet is it going to be? How wet is it going to stay? When is the right moment to go back to a real racing tire? Um, and so those are all things you're going to see play out again and again uh, over the course of an F1 season. And this is probably uh, where most of the race's course is charted uh, on, on race day with these strategic decisions. Uh, at the risk of totally overloading everyone on tire strategy, one thing you will hear a lot um, is the concept of the undercut. Uh, Rob, do you want to describe that real quick? Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, real quickly, as the tire degrades, the lap times go up. The car is slower around the course. Um, there is an argument to be like, there is an incentive to try and stop before somebody stops so that you have, they're running an older tire, a slower tire. You were out there on a newer tire. You are suddenly even allowing for the fact that um, you had to absorb the penalty of that, that huge uh, time delay, getting your tires changed. You will still have more laps on, on a better tire uh, than the person you're racing against. And therefore you will gain a lot of time because you'll been in, in an optimal window for your tire while they were sort of struggling with a tire that was fading fast. Uh, and so you will see a lot of teams try and undercut where they bring their car in early and basically try to get a lot of fast laps on a fresh tire um, while the car they are going up against is stuck on a bad tire. The flip of this coin is the overcut where you basically say, I can make my tire last longer than you can, uh, and therefore you can stop early. I'm going to stay out here on track and enjoy the track position I've gained, and I will stop later, and I will uh, end up having a more optimal path uh, through the race. All of this gets complicated by the fact that there's 19 other cars on the track. Where you come out in traffic is going to matter a lot as to how successful the strategy is. Uh, the other thing is that sometimes they just have no idea what, what tires are going to do. And you will go into a race with the prediction being this is going to be a two-stop race. And then somebody might realize, wait, what if we only did one? And so you will see these strategies suddenly get like supercharged because – if you do an overcut and you realize I only need to, need to do this once and somebody did an undercut and they're now <laughs> they're now married to a two-stop race, they have just tacked like 30 seconds onto their race time that you will not have to. And Rob, look, look, there's rain clouds. Are they going to come near the are they going to come near the circuit? Oh my god. Also, I'm no I'm no meteorologist, but I do have a strong suspicion 
that all the heat radiating off the asphalt and generated by the cars themselves creates a weird F1 microclimate that means that weather fronts hover around F1 tracks but often don't fully come in. And so, yeah, you will hear endless radio messages being like, Hey, uh, those clouds seem to be coming in pretty fast. They look pretty. They look pretty bad. And everyone's like, "Yeah, we don't think uh, could be fifteen minutes. Could be never. We'll see what it's happens." Amazing. They have like all that. They have like all of this technology, but they still have the sort of weather divining accuracy of like you know a tea party in your back garden where you're sort of just looking. <laughs> like I don't know. It might be drizzling in ten minutes. I can't really tell. Yeah, a lot of a lot of shots on the broadcast of uh, radar screens. Yeah. Uh, oh speaking God. of other things, we'll see on the broadcast. Danny, you want to run down some uh, some visual things like flags, penalties, that sort of thing. Yeah, this is kind of the last wrinkle in the uh, in the sort of layered experience, right? Like Rob did an incredible job of explaining tires and the engines. We've talked about the cal- you know, the races and the differences between the circuits a bit, the teams, all of this type of thing. Uh, there's one thing that's pretty consistent, and those are the rules of racecraft. Um, and there are sort of three main things to talk about. Flags, uh, which are uh, sort of an indicator of what they mean. Penalties, which is what happens if you break the rules. Uh, and then a sort of like general thought about how drivers are allowed to defend without breaking those rules. Um, so when the cars are going around the circuit, uh, they are constantly being signaled um the status of the track at any one stage generally it's just green flags that are waved around and saying go do your thing race around Uh, this is both people on the side of the track waving flags and also a display on the middle of their sort of lcd screen on the on the steering wheel itself um and uh it's generally green go racing but then there are some things that happen that require the driver to drive in very specific ways the most common of this is well actually the most common is probably the blue flag which uh, i'll get to that in a second the most common for us as viewers on a television is something called a yellow flag which basically means there's something wrong um in a part of the track either on the track or to the side of the track be careful because you might hit something slow down don't overtake that type of thing um there are differences in the way this yellow flag is presented if it's waved it means uh, it says don't overtake because there is danger on the track somewhere if it's being held, it means don't overtake because there's something near the track that's dangerous. That might be a car that's gone off or something like that. Um, double yellow flag uh, means that there has been a blockage somewhere in the track, and no overtaking at all, and generally slow down You know, as much as you can be expected to sort of avoid something. Um, the blue flags are most common if you're Nicholas Latifi or some of the back markers. Um, this is basically means that over the course of you know a 90-minute, two-hour race, these cars are driving incredibly fast and they will eventually catch up. The front of the pack will catch up to the rear of the pack. Um, they are not racing those cars for position. So the rule is basically if you are the car that's in last place and the car that's in first place is coming up, just get out of the way. That's what the blue flag means. It means you're about to be overtaken get out of the way, don't obstruct them, or, you know, stay on your line and let them pass, but just don't get in the way of them. Don't slow them down. Um, Red flags are not all that rare, but not all that common. 
um, you will have, you, we may have a couple of them during the season. They basically mean that the session has been stopped, um, paused, essentially. Uh, they will get back to it. But for now, all the cars go back uh, to the starting grid or to the pits. Uh, this generally happens if somebody has crashed and they need much longer time to remove that car from the track. Um, in instances of you know particularly bad weather also, you may get a red flag. Um, then there's something called a safety car and a virtual safety car. Um, these are not flags per se. They have flags for them, but VSC or SC will pop up on the screen. Um, and this is basically a way that uh, to slow down everyone on the track um, for a bit of time so that something can be cleared from the track. Generally, a car that's uh, been you know crashed and is sort of stricken somewhere and they need to bring out some cranes or some large um, you know equipment to remove that. Uh, a safety car is essentially a car that drives slower than an F car, but still pretty fast around the track that all the cars sort of um, get in behind, like a conga line, as it were. Um, and it sort of carts them around the track while, you know, the clearage is... is is uh, cleared or the blockage is cleared and a virtual safety car was introduced a few years ago which essentially tries to mimic what a safety car is without having to get all those cars to bunch up together you know ruining advantages that drivers have had over the cars behind them by you know making them all sort of squish together again um the virtual safety car is generally something that happens um if it's a more minor clearance that needs to happen and essentially it's a rule that says that your lap time can't be above a certain amount you all just sort of like slow down a little bit um, and keep the gaps that you had with the car in front of you and behind you. Uh, then there are some flags that don't happen all that often. Um, there is a black flag, which means you have been disqualified. This generally has the number of the driver on it as well. Black flags are very rare in F1 because generally drivers are sensible. Uh, black flag, would you'd be disqualified for having broken a particularly egregious rule um, or what is more likely some sort of dangerous driving or what's even more likely your car is kind of unfit to be driven around the track anymore um we don't often see these uh but with the Haas lineup as it is and um, perhaps there'll be a bit more of a feature in 2021 um we'll have to wait and see um then there is a, a black flag with an orange dot which is oh god i haven't actually got it filled in here i totally forgot to this is the a mechanical problem right there's something wrong with the car you have to bring it in uh or is the or is that that's black and white i think i think the the, the meatball that you're talking meat, about yes. is um debris or oil on the track something oh is that is that what it is oh god okay. i could be wrong i could be swapping those around <laughs> i mean we don't see yeah we don't see those very often generally like on the, the broadcast being summoned to the pits due to serious mechanical problem okay so I oh, was, okay i think You're right. i was right yeah um <clears throat> so loose body work stuff like that um yeah i th- yeah the meatball flag yeah so that one is th- i think we did we have one last year for grosjean that's what i'm th- remembering that there Typically, was one last year i think you only see it when someone's like front wing is hanging off or something Okay, yeah. And generally, they probably are talking to their engineer already. Um, There is a a half black, half white uh, flag, which is sort of like the yellow card version of the the black flag. It's like, you do that again, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, and then there's the yellow and red striped one. That's for uh, debris or oil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or if you have an animal, maybe. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. Which happens. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And of course, everyone's favorite flag the black and white checkered flag, which means the race is over. And if you're the first person to see that getting waved, that means you won the race. Um, 
if you break these rules, there are penalties. Uh, you don't often, you don't always have a flag for a rule being broken. Uh, you can get penalties for lots of things. During the race, you'll see instances happen where cars get too close together or shove each other or, you know, get in each other's way. Uh, there might often be something that they did that you didn't realize was something they shouldn't have been doing, but it actually broke a law that's really important. And when these things happen, if you're watching the television broadcast, generally it'll say something like driver six is under investigation or incidents between drivers three and four um, is under investigation with the names of the drivers written beside their driver number. Um, this uh, can result in lots of different things, lots of different types of penalties, which uh, can really change the look of a race depending on their severity. The most common of which are a five-second penalty, um, which is common enough and you get for small infringements. Uh, this is usually means that you, when you come into the pits on your next go, um, you basically have to stay there for five seconds before they work on the car. Um, if it happens near the end of a race, they'll just add five seconds to your you know, position, and you may end up losing a position out of that. Uh, there are drive-through penalties, which basically means, all right, you did something where you gained a significant advantage that you really, really shouldn't have, like you jumped over a, a curb, or you cut a chicane, or you're, you keep cutting corners, stop doing that. They'll make you drive through the pit lane, which as Rob uh, detailed earlier, uh, has a you know speed limit on it. So you end up losing a significant amount of time, and then uh, positions as well. Um, the more severe version of the five-second penalty is a 10-second stop-go penalty. Um, you can get this for a bunch of stuff like jump starts, speeding in the pit lane, ignoring blue flags to be overtaken, or, you know, egregiously unfair blocking, that type of thing. Makes you come in the pits, sit there for 10 seconds, and then you can go. Um, and then you can, you know, get your grid position changed if you, uh, you know, if there was a large crash that you... Uh, did at one point in the race but then you yourself didn't get penalized because you also crashed out they might give you a, a penalty for your grid position in the next race um if you did some sort of technical uh you broke some sort of technical rule by changing a part of the car um you know these would be things that teams would do knowing that they will get a penalty for it but it's more worth it for them to you know change the gearbox or do something and then they'll lose a couple of positions on the grid um and then the most rare of them all which is a race ban which is something that doesn't happen all that often at all would be again extreme instances of you know dangerous driving i would say was would be what would get you in trouble there um and you know there are lots of rules and some of these rules will be seem archaic to you or seem overly cruel or seem oh you know weirdly broad or not you know not particular enough and you know have room for interpretation which which seems not like not something you should you can have you should have in a sport but the sort of the way in which f1 has it just exists on different tracks and sometimes the weather is different and there's all these different factors that sort of play into it um so how do drivers know when they're allowed to overtake each other? Um, well, we have some, you'll, you'll get a sense of it basically over the course of a season of like whether or not an overtake is a fair overtake or a not fair overtake. But there's some pretty, you know, good, in, in, I guess, immediate points that you should sort of have in your head. You're not allowed to make two moves to defend yourself. If you're two cars going down a straight and the car behind is catching up and they decide to go around the, the right of the car in front and that car goes to block right, 
they're now not allowed to go block left if that car does that again. You're not allowed to just arbitrarily get in the way of the car in front of you over and over and over again, because what's going to happen then is cars are just going to end up crashing into each other over and over again as you end up, you know, creating the sport that is essentially a game of chicken, of like who's willing to risk more um, to overtake. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed late particularly or, or sorry block particularly late either if somebody goes for a gap and then the gap seems to be there and then you decide to block last minute generally that's going to you know in be involved in a crash um so it's not the type of thing they want you doing either um you're not going to run people off the track like you have to kind of leave space on the track for them to overtake so if they're going up the inside and there's like a grass ridge you can't just push them off into the grass that's obviously not uh cool um so you're not allowed to do that either. Uh, and you're not allowed to make like abnormal changes in direction. And this was kind of something that they brought in because Max Verstappen had a very um, unreadable way of blocking the cars in front of him. He wouldn't really commit to one block. He sort of just swam around a little bit and, and tried to you know, anticipate what the person behind was going to do. And it was leading to a lot of crashes and the cars behind, you know, when they're trying to slow down as well, it's not like they can stop themselves at any one time. There's a certain amount of, you know, you know, once you've decided to break, you're sort of up to the whims of physics at that stage. So they decided to essentially bring in this thing where, like, look, you can't just be, like, swimming around like a weirdo in front of the car behind. <laughs> you need to be, like, you know, somewhat readable in your actions. Um, and this so rule is always weird. impartially enforced. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. It is the most, un, you know... Uh, misinterpreted or differently interpreted rule of them all um judging by the fact that even when i'm trying to explain it it just seems like just don't be weird just don't be weird well yeah. what's weird i don't know you know when you see it you know what I mean? That's yeah we do a lot of watching of slow motion replays and going like mm, he should have done yeah. this like a lot of a lot of armchair quarterbagging a lot of totally you know uh, and at least football games happen on the same you know generally same size pitch with the same size ball and all that when you bring in all these different cars and different tracks and different weather and different drivers and different experience and it just it makes the whole thing so much more um yeah in, like particular each instance is its own sort of instance um yeah, and then I mean, there's there's other there's lots of regulations around the amount of um, testing you're allowed to do, the amount of hours you're allowed to do in wind tunnels, um, the amount of parts you're allowed to have. Uh, Rob got into some of this stuff in his section. Um, and what's kind of odd about this year is that this is the last year for a lot of those. There's a lot of big rules coming in next year, which is again all of these things are brought in to try and you know generate um, some sort of. Um, you know, equity or, 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 or standard between all of these different companies with so much more resources than these other companies. You know, Ferrari and Haas are meant to be competing with each other, even though they they have access to, well, I guess it's different there for Haas. They're, they're <laughs> Russian team. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, you could kind of go into this, you know, forever, um, the depths of the amount of rules that they have but when it comes to the on-track action that is kind of the bones of most of it nice um yeah there's a there's a lot of like we are barely scratching the surface here of the the things that go on in a race can go on in a race that the lingo that will pop up i did want to highlight some uh specific ones here that you'll hear a lot um you'll hear people over the radio say box 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 that just means pit, as in pit box. Um, I guess pit is, isn't 
easier it boxes easier to hear over the radio or something then it's like um, your niner <laughs> yes niner in an airplane <laughs> um back marker is uh like what danny was talking about with blue flags the the people in the back of the field the people you're passing um the slowest cars are called back markers um oversteer and understeer something you'll hear a lot um if you imagine taking a car around a corner and it doesn't turn enough and you kind of just it happens a lot to me in video games where i turn all the way but then i still go forward and off the track that is uh understeer you're you're not steering enough um or your car isn't turning enough oversteer is when you uh you turn and the rear of your car slides out it gets too much steer uh you have oversteered um, and you know, this will happen at the my, a minute level, like not even visible to, uh, observers, but the drivers can certainly fear it. So you might hear them say like, I'm getting a lot of oversteer in, in this corner or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, Rob mentioned, uh, marbles, the undercut, um, the tire cliff is what we call when the, the tire has degraded to such a degree that the lap times start to rise precipitously. You'll that know it when you see it. Most teams, yeah, most teams do not in. hit it. They stop like yeah. they go right up to it. Occasionally you'll see like, oh, that car is going way slower than it was. That's still not the cliff. The cliff is when suddenly a car is like going five seconds slower a lap uh, because it is undrivable. Um, it was a lot more common like three or four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. Or, you know, you'll see it when when if you're trying to stretch the car to the end of the race, like in a one-stop situation, um, you'll see on the tires themselves, you can actually see this from the footage and the onboard uh, camera footage, blistering or graining is what they call um, the tire actually getting physically shredded. Um, yeah, anything else anybody wants to point out? Any other lingo? I think that's kind of it. Yeah. I kind of think there's lots of memes. There's lots of in-jokes. That's the other side of the lingo that you will learn from watching and listening to oh, us. Oh, I guess. Yes. Did we talk about brake lockups, actually? Oh, lockup is a good one. Yeah. So uh, basically the way a brake is supposed to do is supposed to slow the rotation of the tires, um, but they do need still need to rotate. Uh, so you're uh, quickly arresting the forward progress of the show, of the show, of the car. A brake <laughs> lockup uh is when the brakes just sort of seize, the tires stop spinning altogether, at which point they are no longer actively slowing the car down in that same way. Instead, now the entire car is just sort of like on skis and is just skidding forward uh, into the corner. It is still slowing down, uh, but it really trashes the tires very quick. It adds what is called a bald spot on the tires where like tires supposed to be round. You do that to a tire. You sort of like squared off the tire. Of- it's like using yeah. a piece of chalk. Yeah. You rub yeah. a round piece of chalk on a wall and suddenly you get that yep. little edge. Causes a lot of bad vibrations. Mm. Um, yeah, I should say there are no anti-lock brakes on these cars. Right, yeah. Uh, which would alleviate that. Instead, it is all down to driver skill. Um, but speaking of watching, uh, if you are in the US, you have two ways to watch Formula One. Um if you've got a cable package, you may have ESPN. Um, most races air on ESPN or ESPN2, uh, as well as qualifying and uh, the practice sessions. 
<clears throat> but you, you may need to slum it in ESPN3 or ESPNU for those occasionally. <laughs> um, uh, your other option, uh, and if you have an ESPN login, you can use, like I use the Apple TV app that generally just has everything on demand and it's, um, it's pretty good. Uh, if not, um, F1 has its own subscription service called F1 TV, which is about 80 bucks a year. Uh, there is a cheaper $27 subscription that does not allow live viewing. It only has on-demand, but I don't actually know for sure if that includes qualifying and practice sessions. I, right. think, it, I think it does. Uh, but that actually changes from country to country. Sometimes there is no top tier. You only get on-demand. Um, so it is a wild west out there. And so also if, what changes country to country is when the races are on because they're oh, yes. all over the world. So if you live on the West Coast, get ready for lots of 5 a.m. wake-up calls. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're in Europe, they're generally sort of on a good you know, Sunday afternoon. Yeah. For me, I watch on the, um, on the, the West Coast of America here. I uh, wake up and watch the replay because it has awesome. generally been... It, it concludes before 7 a.m., so... When I wake up, I just love that. Stay up. off Twitter. Yes, exactly. Um, speaking of Twitter and uh, the social sphere, um, some good additional resources. Uh, I'd say the number one with the bullet is the Chain Bear F1 YouTube channel. Uh, we have had uh, Stuart on the show before. Uh, he creates these technical explanations of what how Formula One cars work. He just did a great um, series on suspension. They're they're easy to follow and they they really help um, uh, me at least uh, you know get a, a sense of the actual technical stuff that's that's going on. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, I guess you could go to Reddit. I haven't really found a lot um, useful there. Uh, well, there's always Formula One Point Five. There um, is that. Yes. Or one point. What was the other one? One point two. Let's not get into it. Um, It it may seem obvious, but the uh, the F1 YouTube channel, you know, just to mention the obvious, is uh, full of resources. It has replays of, you know, has um, what you call them highlights of practice, each practice session and qualification and the races, and they get them up pretty fast. So if you're not interested in watching all of practice or all of qualification, you know, at the very least, you should check out the practice uh, highlights on YouTube because they are, you know full of information like it's relevant stuff like sometimes mm-hmm. folks crash or sometimes some cars are really underperforming or overperforming so even if you're not going to commit all that time it's definitely worth checking out a five minute video just to uh, keep up the speed on what's going on in any given weekend for qualifying for sure um yeah. and we have we have listeners that um that don't watch the races at all they just <laughs> watch uh the race highlights you know i get it like right. 80 bucks a year or having a cable package maybe not um the most uh enticing thing um and if you've got such a great podcast like this that recaps all the races for you exactly what more do you really need i love the idea that we could just make up a race sometime and there's a significant <laughs> portion of our audience which wouldn't have a clue didn't know we formula one race on the moon april, april yeah april 1st let's do it for the uh, right we also Patreon have... tier we will goodbye lennon you the f1 season <laughs> of your dreams <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I did not think Williams would make the run to the championship. They seem to be on track to enjoy. Man. Nicholas Latifi just killing it in these post-race interviews. Um, we also have a uh, an official fantasy. Yes, Formula One has uh, F1 Fantasy League. 
uh if uh, if that's your jam uh we'll place the link in the the show notes um so we also we try to post links to everything that we mentioned in the show notes of the actual podcast episode so if you're listening on a particular app generally it can all be uh found there or on our website f1.cool that is indeed a domain name you can type into your internet browser i just stopped and it will take you there year. yeah sweet um and uh on twitter we have an official twitter account at shift f1 podcast um where we try to retweet all relevant news uh all the drivers or most of the drivers have twitter accounts as do the teams of course in formula one um i am at drew scanlon danny is at danny o'dwyer and rob is at rob zachney we also have an email address if you'd like to send us uh some questions uh shift f1 podcast at gmail.com um and we release a, an episode every wednesday during the season so and they're not all this long <laughs> no no we try to keep them around an hour maybe hour yeah, 15 or so. we keep them over because it used to better the race longer the show that's true yeah that's true it's yeah. um it's and it's weird because like this did not used to be definitely every single week but as they have continued to add um races and also last year when we had this sort of fugue state between oh, man. That was so march weird. and the start of the season um we kept we kept we kept it going uh but outside of that we have other hidden podcasts this is well. true yeah uh, so this whole enterprise is uh possible uh from currently about 945 people who support us over patreon.com slash shift f1 and as it is a new season we have some new bell- bells and whistles on our patreon uh the, the main reason people sign up is because they get access to a monthly exclusive podcast um we tend to have a lot of fun on these podcasts and they're also very evergreen so if you signed up today you get access to all of those too um i think there's something like 20 film review podcasts slash primers on other um racing series we've reviewed movies like ford versus ferrari days of thunder last year we did senna um hitting the apex cars talladega nights um there's a uh, bunches of videos in there too on a different tier um there's loads of bits and bobs so just head over to patreon.com slash shift f1 and check out what we're offering we'll be adding uh, by the time this goes up we will have a new sponsorship tier which is kind of a joke tier <laughs> we'll see how it goes um <laughs> And uh, we'll also be adding annual, which is the biggest request that we had in the off season. Um, so if you want to support us for the year, instead of you know having a couple of months, uh, sorry, a couple of bucks come out every month, uh, you can instead um, just give us one big lump for the year um, at a discounted rate. We'll chop off a month, so eight percent off um, what the total uh, would have been. Uh, we also have some new ideas this year because, uh, as Rob was very well pointing out during the off season, we have unfortunately drained the well on some of the better <laughs> <laughs> racing movies can i tell um, people about my dark night yeah. of the soul like <laughs> i was sitting there i was like you know what i'm gonna help out the i'm gonna help out the gang i'm gonna sit here i'm gonna see what these other documentaries that amazon's like you might like this i'm gonna check them all out see what little treasures are out there that uh maybe we can enjoy with our fans uh for for the year <laughs> i start watching them most of them are really bad uh, at this okay. point. Like, there was one that was basically like, it was a Fernando Alonso documentary, but I swear to God, it was like put out by maybe Fernando Alonso's like personal PR company or something. It was just like, <laughs> 
here's Fernando Alonso, just the best driver in the world, as we all know. Here he is kicking in Spain with his best friends because he's just a regular guy like you and me. And I was like, <laughs> it is making me hungry for like Spanish food and being rich in Spain. But like beyond that, I feel like I'm not really getting to know the man. And then I stumbled onto this thing called the racing years. This, I don't oh, think yeah. we could... I don't think it's good Patreon content, and I'm not going to inflict it on you. However, on Amazon, there's a thing called the racing years. I don't know where it came from. My suspicion is it was like one of those things you get an advertising for, like in the middle of the night, where it's like, for $10.99 a month, order this collection of racing years VHSs. And it's like for your for your dad or your grandpa to like remember their days of watching the sport. It is all just a series of videos where they talk about what happened in a given year in motorsport. And just narrate it and cover it like Beautiful. it's a current season. Like it's riveting. It's like a bunch of old B-roll, bunch of old footage, no narrative through line, nothing interesting happening, <laughs> but a lot of old pictures. Um, but not a movie, and not really a lot to dig into. Right. Uh, and yeah. that's kind like of stuff. the tier that is left. Well, we won't inflict that on our patrons. Uh if the Sounds like the racing we have fallen off the cliff, as it were, uh, with uh, with with the quality. Uh, but we do have some new ideas. Um, well, first of all, actually, we'll, we're going to go back to an old friend, which is the uh, new series of Drive to Survive will be hitting Netflix at some stage around the start of the season. So we'll likely do a breakdown of that over a couple of episodes. Um, but we have some other tricks up our sleeve, like we're going to do classic race reviews. So we're going to sort of watch a race as it was a normal shift f1 podcast race and just do one but based on some of the classic races i, I suspect we will have a lot of people uh, voting and suggesting uh, races so we're looking forward to that um we're also going to do something similar with different racing series we used to do primers um for some racing series you can go back and watch our motor listen to our motor gp primer all that sort of stuff um you know the the only problem was you needed to be sort of experts or get experts on for those and it's become increasingly tricky uh, the more obscure they get so instead we have an idea where we're going to watch some of those races and then sort of come away with an initial sort of almost you know first experience uh yeah here's those. what it's like to watch yeah exactly so that should be fun and it also allows us to get pretty obscure with some of the racing uh, and then of course there are other movies so who knows you know it's like I got gone in 60 seconds and fast and furious <laughs> and all of these, you know, at the end of last year, we did cars and Talladega nights. So I feel like, you know, the floodgates are open. Yeah. We've, uh, we've crossed the Rubicon when it comes to what constitutes a racing movie. Um, so yeah, who knows all that and more can be available to you. If you go to patreon.com slash shift F1. And we also have some new goals up. If we get above that 1000 patron mark, we have never crested. We've changed some of the goals to be more COVID friendly. <laughs> um, so check those out. Patreon.com slash shift F1. Uh, the patrons also um, uh, get access to what is has been a, uh, a really vibrant uh, Discord community. Uh, I yes. pop in there uh, quite often and it's, uh, it's always popping. So um, I think that's the preseason primer, everybody. Uh, thank you, Danny. And thank you, Rob. Um, f- thank you, Drew. Danny, final thoughts about uh, this upcoming season? It's I have this is if you're new to F1, we have never had this much new change between seasons. I mean, we have in terms of the mechanics of the cars, but in terms of what drivers are at what teams and wait, what's this team called now? Um, <laughs> yeah. In terms of rookies on top of rookies, uh, there's 
just a lot in this season that's kind of got question marks on it. So those first couple of races are going to be very interesting. I cannot wait. How about you, Rob? Yeah, I'm with Danny. I'm interested both in the amount of changes that are happening right now, but also the current roadmap for F1 is the sport is going to change dramatically almost every year for the next three years. And so like in a weird way, our last normal year of F1 was 2019. And I don't know when (laughs) F1 is going to feel normal again. uh, Cause it sure isn't this year where people are like, "Eh, we're going to sort of compete, but also we're definitely going to be fighting what the future of F1 is. And then every year from here, there's going to be some massive sea change hitting the sport many of which are still under negotiation by the teams that we're seeing fight to the death on the track. And last year was a weird blip where everyone was like, we're going to help the sport get through this in a spirit of co- mm. like comedy and, uh, you know, agreement. Uh, you know, we're going to meet the challenge of COVID head on. My suspicion is that moment has passed and we're going to back, we're going to be back to uh, what I guess I would term the classical F1 petty bitch behavior that we've spent our lives watching. Um, and I think we're going to get a lot more of that. So I, I am into this both for the races, which I'm excited to see. There's actually a cool calendar despite that midsummer slump. But in particular, I just think the future of the sport is so interesting and is so up in the air um, that there's more than ever, there's as much to keep track of off the track as on. I wholeheartedly agree with both of you. Um, I am very much looking forward to this. Uh, And uh, I'm grateful to have uh, all the listeners with us for what uh, promises to be uh, a very interesting season. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all those bonus episodes, you can do so over at patreon.com slash shiftf1 again. Uh, Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. I do that every episode. So, I don't know when my recording stopped, but it did. Oh, so I may I might need to get the file from you, Danny, to fill in. No problem. It's going to be on um, the other mic, but I'm going to start a whole other file, and here. we'll do a clap, and we should do a clap. Cool. Okay, but while we work on these technical difficulties, for those of you just joining the sport, you have to know that Max Verstappen is kind of an edgelord stream- gaming streamer who also took a job from a guy named Daniel Kafiat. He used to have a position at Red Bull, but things didn't go well for him, and they dumped him back down to the junior team at Red Bull, uh, which used to be called Taro Rosso, but is now called uh, AlphaTauri. That doesn't matter. The point is, Daniel Kafiat got involved with the daughter of an XF1 championship named <laughs> Kelly Pickett, and they dated for a while okay. and ended up 
they ended up having a kid together. But no sooner had they done that than they broke up and she started dating none other than Max Verstappen. And so now they're like an item. And Daniel Kofiat has been kicked out of the sport. Like nobody would hire him. I think he's a backup driver somewhere, but that doesn't mean anything anymore. Nobody Backup drivers don't get to do shit. This is a known fact. And so Daniel Kofiat has had like two or three years of just watching Max Verstappen take everything from him and live the life that should have been his. <laughs> Oh boy. 